So yeah, we uh, we. Tr- oh, where am I down? What happened to me? Oh, oh, I'm not on. <laughs> I'm not on. I've asked that question so many times. Um, yeah, we've transitioned a little bit. JP uh, brought uh, something special with him. It's the Sweet Baby Jesus Chocolate Peanut Butter Porter. It's from Duclaw Brewing. Where are they? Is that New York? Minnesota. Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota. Oh, jeez, That's JP. not farm to table. Baltimore. Sorry. Baltimore's farm to table. Baltimore's farm to table. Very good. Very good. Um... This was amazing when I first took a sip of it. A real mud flood. And yeah. <laughs> it kind of was. They could have called this mud flood. But that's perfect. Yep. Um, warm, it's a little weird. It actually has a kind of... like that. You know how porters have that kind of uh, alcohol-y flavor? Like mm-hmm. sometimes mm-hmm. it's kind of heavy on that. It almost seems that it tastes like it's separated a little bit. But those first couple of sips were... They're killers. And it's a peanut butter porter, right? Mm-hmm. Chocolate peanut butter porter? Yeah, I took a sip of it. It's really peanut butter forward. But it's very, it tastes like a milkshake. It, it tastes does. sweet. It, it tastes like it has like a bunch of sugar in it. But it doesn't, like I'm it. assuming. Maybe it doesn't. I don't, I don't fucking know up here. All right, so we're back. A week has passed. Uh, maybe, maybe one of those people in the vice presidential debate took the plexiglass between them and smashed it over the other one's head I mean, like a chair in a wrestling match. It's been longer than a week since then, though. It's been like... Ten days. Ten days since then. For all we know... Who the fuck knows what's happened in know, the last ten days? Nancy Pelosi's president Marshall right now. Law. Yeah, martial law has been instituted. Two of, uh, two of the three of us may be dead. It's likely. Two of the three of us may be crossing our fingers as we're recording this, hoping that we don't have to sit through the next... Two and a half weeks. Yeah, exactly. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, but we are here. We're in this this second episode of uh, number 15. We've only done this once before with episode 50, where we broke it into two parts. And that was because they were, you know, 50 seemed like a significant... Well, also, good and the bad and the ugly and throne of blood. What's the thing? So we needed to be separate. They each needed to be their own episode, especially with the fact that, like, I think upon rewatching both of those things, it, like, blew... Like, rewatching the good, the bad, and the ugly... At, you know, doing this was blue fucking rewatching mind. Throne of Blood. Yeah, it, they were both killers. I, we're, this is different. They're not necessarily killers, and I'm gonna we're gonna talk about that in a little bit. My number fifteen is stretching. I think the boundaries of what we had, Mario intended this list to be. <laughs> this movie originally aired on ABC uh, on November nineteenth, and then twenty second and twenty third. In well, I mean, but two hour orig- chunks. Originally, it was an ITV six part episode, right? No, it was an ABC thing. No, but British. Oh ITV yeah, yeah, yeah. six part episode. Six part episode, but we kind of, we when in we America, got it, we yeah. put it into two, three two hour chunks each. So it was six hours truncated and everything. Right. Um, not truncated. 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 <laughs> that just means ruined. <laughs> two, three ruined episodes. Um, from nine to eleven, and the thing that I'm talking—maybe there's one person out there that's listening to this. It's like, well, I know what it is. I know what it is. I, you know, I'm, the thing is ingrained in my mind. Um, it is uh, the Beatles anthology. What's your favorite Beatles song? Paperback writer. Baby, you can drive my car. Baby, you can drive my car. In my life, I'm fixing a hole. Axeman. The ABC stars celebrate the Beatles anthology November 19th on A Beatles C. So like I said, JP asked me off air 
And I'll just kind of say, who's still here, by the way? Who's still here? We, he here. just he spent the week. He got he brought his sleeping bag over. Um, I just kept saying, JP, stop cuddling. Him and Lawrence, him and Lawrence Kazan, you know, Lawrence Kazan won't let him sleep. He's like, get me out of here. Um, I remember. Uh, I think oh, maybe should I say which special about this episode? Which special about this episode is that me and Mario and JP are not going to spend a lot of time talking about this with ourselves. I watched this originally at home. I was. Um, 13 years old when this aired and my dad was probably the biggest Beatles fan that I, I, I it's, he's still the biggest Beatles fan that I know. He was the big, definitely the biggest Beatles fan that I know. I, I knew at the time he had, um, every Beatles record on vinyl. He had bootleg stuff. He had the Shea stadium concert on vinyl. Well, uh, yeah. was that from what? Like just for people who aren't familiar. Oh, the so Shea the Shea stadium, stadium concert was 64. I think the first one was like 64. So it was like the height of Beatlemania. And it was the re, yeah, because it was at the recently constructed Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium right. was new. Right. And so it was like, the, it, at the time, it was like the largest concert ever. 55,000 just screaming people. Wow. The Beatles were on stage just being crazy. It never got issued. It's never been issued officially as a concert. My dad's copy, vinyl copy, is like a white sleeve with a yellow photocopied picture glued to it. And it's just all like. <sighs> with the Beatles playing so that was like he had all that she had all that stuff um and so when I sat when we sat down when this happened and I kind of talked about this on the on the on what you're going to hear me and my dad did a long conversation about so I didn't even say I'm, I feel like I'm a little out of sorts here me and my dad instead of the three of us having it a conversation me and my dad had a long conversation about the Beatles anthology because he's a he's a fucking Beatles guy this is a big deal to him and I asked about it I was like was this a big deal and he said yeah it was and it was kind of a big deal to me too because the Beatles were just like in my life forever and so at some point in 1995 in November, it came to pass that I would know in a couple fell swoops everything there was to know about the Beatles. I was going to get new interviews with Paul McCartney and George Harrison and Ringo Starr. I was going to get two new songs by the Beatles. I didn't know they would be... Oh, that that happened or anything? So they found these two... two songs. So they took these two... John Lennon kind of demo things that he wrote with like vocals and guitar and they made songs out of them. them Little did I know that they would essentially just be George Harrison uh, George Harrison Dark Dark Horse songs. Well, they're they're okay songs. Actually, they've been interpreted really well. Like some people have done cool. There's a Regina Spector version of Real Love that is fucking amazing. Real Love being a... One of the songs, one of the new Beatles songs that they kind of unearthed. Um, but I was gonna, I was gonna know some things. I was gonna, I was gonna know where it all came from, and it didn't, it didn't disappoint me. I mean, the first, so when we and Mario first did this list, and I gave Mario my list, I was like, here it is, and he's like, what's this? And I was like, it's a, it's it. So what, what I'm reacting to is the DVD copies of it, which my dad has had for like as long as the DVDs have been available, and which I watch like every year. I will watch these things, and we'll kind of get a little bit to why. And Mario was just like, what the hell is this? And I was like, it's an eight-part, ten-hour Beatles documentary that aired on TV. And he's like, I'm not watching this. So, but because he's a good sport, he watched the first two, the first two episodes, which are like early Beatles stuff. It's like the beginning, the birth of the Beatles. And for me, and one of the things I'm going to talk about, and one of the things I talk about a lot on The Thing, what I'm going to talk about here, is that 
on episode 17 we talked about almost famous and almost famous almost seemed like the perfect distillation of what it meant to be a fan of something you know what i mean maybe it was kind of less than perfect in the sense it didn't have like that hard edges that being a fan has you know what i mean and jp can talk a little bit about this too is like the band that you fucking grow up loving and then they do something shitty and you're like wow that's shitty but i'm still gonna buy it you know what i mean at some point in my life so i was 13 when i saw this at 14 i started playing drums i became a musician um and then a few years later after that i became a songwriter and the Beatles anthology to me gave me not it, it showed me what it meant to be in a band what it meant to be creative doing anything what it meant to be an artist but specifically what it meant to be a songwriter and how being a songwriter didn't just mean like reinventing the wheel every time you like took your guitar out because if you were reinventing the wheel you wouldn't take a guitar out you'd take a like a Flockenschmuschen out, and it would be an instrument that you invented that had. You would take a bus ride to Liverpool to find B seven. Yeah, you would. Yeah, exactly. Which is a oh my god, one of my. I get like chills when I see that part still. Like we do these two chords, and we went to this guy's house, and he showed us B seven. Um, but I still I pull from it like to this day. I think of it every single time I sit down to write a song, and I've written a bunch really? of songs. Which is, I have the freedom to do whatever I want. Being an artist means not just like living in your own bubble. It means existing in this kind of continuum of music that started with Rocket 88. And it goes until the moment I write whatever the next stupid song that I write is going to be. What's Rocket 88? Rocket 88 is kind of what everyone considers to be the first rock and roll song. Um... So they talk a little bit about it in like those early episodes, yeah. and like so it's like the Chubby Checkers, the Little Richard, like that stuff. It has like these very specific qualities that everyone considers to be like this is the this is the first rock and roll song. Um, but I learned all that from uh, from this documentary and from kind of renewing my interaction with this documentary over years and years and years and years and years. And years. Um, to the it's just so, to the point where I like. I watch, I've seen this thing, I don't know, 10 times maybe, like at the most. And it's so fucking long. It ruined it ruined my life this week. I'm going to be very honest with you because I wanted to watch all of it, but I had schoolwork to do and I had work work to do and I had like conversations about my kids to have and like, you know, just being like a, a, in a marriage and like all this other stuff. But every night I was just like, we got to, wow, we got to watch three hours of the, Be- <laughs> the Beatles yeah. anthology. Sorry. Um, but when I would watch it, I would be like, I know 100% what happens here. I know exactly where this goes, but I just can't stop watching it. Because it, it renews my feeling that I can do it. Like, it gives me permission to do the... Stu- like what we were talking about off air with Vietnam 6 and Vague Terrain. That we could just... I could write a bunch of songs and I can give them to you, JP. And I can just be like... This is it. This is what we're going to do now. And that's good, right? And you're just like, whatever. It's just The fun. real peep best of joint earners. Right. Oh, no, no, no. He's the stuce. I'm, if anything, if any, he's the Ringo. If anything, I'm the Jimmy Nickel of the, of the joint earners. JP, we're going to... I know you have thoughts because you're a musician. I'm... 
I think I want to piggyback your thoughts off of Mario's thoughts. What did you think of those two those two episodes? I Which wasn't. Um, you, I wish you had seen all of it because. Yeah, I fucking love it. Well, you need to watch. Really? It. Um. Yeah. I I hate the Beatles. You do but, hate the Beatles. We've but had a lot of conversations. But about it's this. it's so. It's eclectically interesting to see something that is a major part of history um, and have it described in such a pure way mm. that's fun. And so, I, 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 to be honest, I didn't get through the second part. You told me to watch the first part, and it's I fun. got through the first part. The fact that you watch any of it is like So I kind of want to keep that first disc you sent me. Yeah, yeah, keep it. Because I, I only watched the first part. I can, I'll bring the rest next week um, if you want. But... Yeah, but um, I I do not like the Beatles, and this didn't change my mind. I mm-hmm. still I yeah, still yeah, like, yeah. like two or three songs from them, but I I respect what they have to offer. Obviously, because if I didn't, I'd be a fucking dumbass. I'd be a a Lindsay McGra- a Lindsay Graham of <laughs> film oh, and theory, and that's how we tie last week to this week. <laughs> um, but no, I watched this at going like this is. Like, this is this is an amazing way of, of seeing pop culture because mm. like I I feel as though like pop culture is, is 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 incredibly fascinating, and this film is so raw in its sense. Like like the fucking first thirty minutes of presenting the Beatles oh, and I think showing I like all their influences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so great. It's, like it's... like Lonnie Lonnie I can't remember his last name. Lonnie oh, Anagram? Yeah, Lonnie, uh, Lonnie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and just yeah. showing him playing his music or, like, fucking Buddy Holly's fucked up teeth and him yeah. singing this song. Like, just showing this. And, you, and, like, me as a person who does not like the Beatles looking at this going, like, yeah, I could see all the influence. Or, like, little Richard, like, at the piano. Like, you see all the influence and it builds up from that. And, like, leading to the thing I said of... Um, like Paul McCartney talking about how like we learned A, we learned E, and we had to travel across Liverpool to mm-hmm. learn B seven. And whether or not it's true or not, it doesn't change it the doesn't fact matter. that it's amazing. It doesn't change the fact that like I accept the fact that the Beatles had next. I I don't like them, um, but I accept the fact that they had this, like this real profound impact, and I was engrossed every moment of it because this is where it came from yeah. this is where the it didn't so that's what i said on the podcast a lot with my dad did which you I, fucking expect that no i <laughs> well you know what actually that's not true i didn't expect you i i kind of did and i think I, upon this most recent watch i was like you know when i bet that mario re- I, it's funny i did say that to myself but mario really digs this early part because the early part is not just about the beatles so one of the, like the later parts are just beatles heavy the early part is literally a construction of this thing that everyone kind of has decided is um, the, one of the most important things that happened in the world in but pop even, culture it's like this is how it was made it didn't even, come from nowhere it didn't drop out of the fucking sky it was made through this these these fashions but there's a bit of eloquence to how they present the entire story where like even when it gets beatles heavy i'm going to be like i will never not accept the fact that the Beatles are the most important band mm-hmm. in the past right. 70 years of music. Yeah. Like, I will, I do not like their music just because it doesn't jive with what I want in music, but I'm also a Muse fan. So, like, but take that as you will. But that's great that you recognize that because yeah. to me, it's like, it's the most important band in the history of rock and roll 
was documented to the T. Yeah. It's all there and in this documentary. Yeah, and exactly. And, and it's the fact of, like, I don't like the Beatles, but I love bands who love the Beatles. Right. And this is, like, from the first, like, part and, like, a bit of the second half I watched, the second part I watched, um, I, I, like, I like seeing that kind of very lateral description of how they came to be because it it reaches out to something I do appreciate. Mm. So tell me a little, so you, you know, you kind of told me a little bit about it off air. When you, J, I'm talking to JP now, when you originally, so you, you originally saw it, you watched it when it originally aired, did it have the kind of same impact? I remember you, because one of the things that I kind of talked about with my dad is that we, um, he was looking for something specific because he was a, he was a huge Beatles fan and we're going to hear a little bit about that. But so he went into it. Being a huge Beatles fan, having all these bootleg records, but still not having seen any of the footage that he was going to see. Like, were you aware of that footage existing? Did you, did it like, did it kind of like blow your mind that you could see them do, you know, yeah. I don't know, whatever. So this aired in 95. Mm-hmm. I was obviously aware of the Beatles before that, but not intimately. Um, Greg friend of the podcast, Greg Antonini, uh, introduced me to the Beatles through Magical Mystery Tour. We got to get Greg on. Yeah. I then then took the deep deep dive through the CD releases that were Mm -hmm. the biggest thing then. So I knew the Beatles in and out musically before the documentary aired. When the documentary aired, I was done with college. Sitting at home, being a loser, couldn't find a job. I'm a loser. Yeah, I'm a loser. And me and my dad each night watching that documentary series. And I I just sucked it all in. Mm-hmm. I mean, every moment of footage. To me, and I got the book immediately. There's yep. a huge that hardcover huge book. coffee table it's book. It's the worst book because it... it like it doesn't fit on any shelf. Right. It's like the most weirdly yeah. shaped book. It's yeah. awful. And it's not even hardcover. It's paperback. Yeah. But for me, I, I just soaked it all up. I was like, I want, and then shortly or either before or during or after that time, Greg and I went to a Beatles convention mm-hmm. and we picked up bootlegs and this and that. I mean, it was just a matter of, like I said before, this band, the most important band to ever exist, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First band to write their own songs besides Buddy Holly. Um, <laughs> a screaming came across the sky. <laughs> um, so much of it, tele- so much was recorded in video. It's so amazing. Much. And yeah, I, like when I saw your list, I'm gonna refer back to sitting outside street. You guys flashed your I, list. I brought at me. it. I brought it with me. And when I saw anthology so high on this list, I said, "Oh, well, this." Okay, so this is a very informal list because this isn't a movie. This is a fucking TV docu series, and sort of like a Ken Burns documentary, except better. But I also I can't stop thinking of it as a movie. Like, it just seems like it's of a whole. Like, it, even though it stops, like, you know, the t- the TV timeouts are very well telegraphed. Right. You know, every part ends with a with a credit sequence. You got to switch. It doesn't play the next 
um, doesn't play the next part. You gotta, you know, go back onto the menu and select the next part. Yeah. Um, but it just, it's because it's a whole band. It's a whole, the, the life of a band. It doesn't go beyond the band. It stops when the Beatles stop. It's not like it deals with solo careers. Did they, did they show the footage? I want to think they showed the footage of, um, Lennon recording How Do You Sleep or was that am I totally wrong yeah they don't show any of that I'm stuff. totally wrong yeah. on that okay there's probably I mean that's probably a different documentary that's yeah like maybe even all of these guys when kind of participated calls, in when yeah. he calls Paul McCartney a con yeah 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 well that's one of the things me and my dad talk about this is like the Paul McCartney is the villain of like the yeah. The you know the, the thing and that's and that's I think one of the be- the beautiful things about this and the way that it's a movie you can talk actually I turned your thing all the way down Paul McCartney's the villain of this? Well, because so Paul as McCartney's the, a beetle? As the movie goes... <laughs> oh, no, I watched us going like... I mean, okay, I, I, will, I will say this as a person who does not give a fuck about the Beatles outside of whatever. I hate John Lennon. And I watched That's this... so funny. Going like, John Lennon's the bad guy. No, why it's... Why do you hate him, though? Uh, I just think he's like so... Aberrantly, like, like ideologically opposed to like what the Beatles represented, and the Beatles represented like this. Like, so that sh- it's like, funny because that kind of consolidation of music. Yeah, that kind of changed after a while, and that's one of the things that me and my dad talk about a lot. Is that like Lennon, while Lennon and Harrison were doing these really interesting things, so when they go to India, and John Lennon talks about he, how he wrote all this music, and it's yeah, he played Dear Prudence, and you yeah. know they play. Um, Everybody has something to hide except for me and my monkey when, like, the helicopter scene. And George Harrison, you know, obviously wrote all this, like, heavily music that was heavily Indian influenced influence. by Indian music. Really quickly, really, what, part, what parts are these from? This is, like, seven or yeah. six, six or seven. seven yeah. So I'll bring, it, I'll bring it over next week. Yeah. Oh, you I'll bring you the it. box. I watched, I watched parts one and slightly parts two. Right. And so one of these... I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm not going to change my opinion of Lennon, but I'm willing no, no, to be and, influenced. But so one of the things that happens is that, like, in Paul McCartney's, like, writes, I will. You know what I mean? It's like this corny little love song. One of the things that happens later in the movie is that Paul McCartney um, becomes the kind of guiding force behind everything that the Beatles do after Brian Epstein dies. So they make a bunch of really terrible decisions. Their manager. So they make a bunch of really terrible decisions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like they open like a store in London to sell like, you know, Apple hippie store. shit. And then they do the Apple label just to release Badfinger and James, a bunch of gr- uh, and a bunch of crap. What's his name, James? Uh... Badfinger. Badfinger is a band that sounds exactly like the Beatles, and they were pretty good, but they also were James Taylor. James, well, the first James Taylor record, yeah. But it, that wasn't James Taylor that sounds anything like the James Taylor. Right. Like I've seen Fire and I've seen Rain stuff. I don't know what that is. Something's happening in New Haven. It's like an air raid siren. <laughs> but honestly, I mean, the end of the Beatles was Lennon basically saying, I think the stuff you're doing is bullshit. But I think that's the really interesting thing about the documentary is that it's not just Lennon saying, I think the stuff you're doing is bullshit. It's that George was also like, I don't want to fucking do this. But like Paul becomes a villain because every, like the magical mystery tour being this weird disaster. And one of my favorite moments is that everyone. What part is this? This is, again, later in the documentary. So this is like their last film that they also, make. Also, like, I'm just in the background. 
This is yeah. no, but this is great. I, no, it's this good. Is how it works. This, this is how the podcast should work. It's me talking about the Beatles in the background. Every ten, every ten episodes now, I'm gonna talk like I'm gonna have a music movie, and you're gonna be like, I don't know. This is like part like four. This is part like no, this but, is later. Well, but that's the beauty of the documentary. It's a, the whole. It's all connected. Voyage. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Every so the, despite the fact that every episode ends and that there's all these kind of like like commercially type breaks, they start hinting at things. It's a well-made documentary. Bob Smeaton made a well-made documentary in the sense that he starts hinting at things early on in the film that will come to roost later in the film. Um, and it's, you know, I don't know how intent I'm assuming it's very intentional. It wasn't, I don't know if it's intentional for dramatic effect as much as it is just kind of like intellectual. Everybody knows this stuff. Who's Bob Speaton? He's the director. Like, does he have anything? He's a music. Yeah, he's got. He's a musician, um, and he won a couple of Grammys for stuff. And he's directed a bunch of of music documentaries and things like that. Um, but he's you know he sets the groundwork for like what happens later. Um, they make a bunch of choices. Um, so there's it's not like a it's not like a exhaustive history yeah, think, of the I Beatles. Think, I think I watched through like 1960. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dropped out on this. But honestly, it's not that the part that you watch right around where they drop Pete Best. Right. So the part that you watch is 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 the big is all that stuff is very yeah. All but all that stuff is very important to me and why it's on this list because that's where it starts. You know what I mean? Like that's where they kind of there's these there's a couple of moments. There's the one the B seven moment that you talked about. There's a couple of moments where Paul McCartney specifically, like who uh, you know, again he's not the villain, but he just ends up saying and being involved in some stuff that everyone kind of just like dumps on him, which he doesn't necessarily deny. He just kind of Paul McCartney's his way out of it. Like, well, I don't really remember whose idea that was. Just and blah, blah, blah. what I was feeling. Right. Yeah. Um, he has a couple of moments when he's like, you know. There was this, or when, you know, he talks about John writing uh, Please Please Me. And Please Please Me was his attempt to write a Roy Orbison song. And so he's like, we really love Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison had this song and, you know, it did this thing. And like, John really wanted to write that. And I was just like, even so when, right now, when I write a song, I'll be like, oh, this just kind of sounds like this. But I'm, it's okay. You know what I mean? Because it's not, I'm not stealing. And this is, this is, I, this is not 15 on my list because it justifies stealing. <laughs> it justifies plagiarism, which would be hilarious. It would be amazing if that's what your opinion was. Listen, Mario, this movie's here because it makes me feel good to steal from people. <laughs> intellectual property rights stinks. That's what me and my dad talk it just about intellectual properties. I would steal a car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's because Muse, as an artist, it made me understand what like it meant to be an artist. And I'm so like that's the thing. I'm working diligently on like right uh, writing. Like I'm getting my MFA. I'm getting an MFA in creative writing. You would think I'd be comfortable saying like I'm a writer. Yeah. I think saying I'm a writer makes me want to die. Like I can't say that out loud and feel good about it. I'm 100% a musician though. I'm 100% a songwriter. Can I don't feel anything but glad to say those things. Can I ask you? I want to ask you this. What yep. connects you? Like, the musician aspect of this is, is now popping up in the podcast, like, more heavily. Oh, yeah. Um, and it feels as though you tie your father to this. Like, like what, like, what is... 
like do you feel like there's like a comfort level between like where your dad sees music and where you see music well we definitely have a we have a relationship that's if not based on it then is like a foundation for... there's a real synergy oh fuck there. yeah i mean me and my dad have been to like I don't know, 50 shows together? I mean, yeah, as, as a person who's been your friend for 10 years, your dad shows up to, like... Every show. Eight, 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 like, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. At, yeah, yeah. And I, said, I say this as an outside observer. You said every show. Like, 80% is... Like, 90% and the ones he doesn't probably show, the right answer. And the ones he doesn't show up to are the ones were too late. Yeah. That are that are just yeah. too late. And he's got to go to he's got to go to work the next day. And we, for some reason, booked the 11.30 show at the Outer Space on a Thursday. Um, like, he doesn't go to that show. There's a real Cafe Nine show at like yeah. 11.30 a.m. You said something before that resonates with me. And um, there's something so foundational about this. I mean, I was 23 when I watched this. But every November, I have a pull within me to watch this. Mm. I, it's always fall. It's always night. So that it was so impactful for me watching it that November month that I just want to watch it yeah. every year at this Wait, time of year. Hold on a second. You were born in 1972? Yes. I always forget I'm that. Mario was like disgusted. <laughs> no, but I feel... Sorry, I just, I, I just always I feel that, but to the point, to your point, Mario, so like, I, when like my little guy got into music and he's like, you know, he loves the Beatles. So my dad got him Beatles records and like we went to the record store together the three of us and he Cutlers. bought a no this Cutlers was way dead before oh it was God. dead 10 years before my son was born <laughs> no we went to Red Scroll and like he bought him a Beatles record because that's like it, like he loves the Beatles he's got a favorite side of the White Album you know what I mean it's he's got so your son does that's yeah awesome. he's got really? he's got the, the four the four uh, pictures that came of the things he's got them hung up in his the things I'll never have audience yeah well, that's like Ethan Ethan I played him Abbey Road over and over and he's just like I love every minute of this and then I started showing him the anthology again I didn't we didn't watch the beginning same thing yeah we watched from like Rubber Soul on and then I said Ethan do you want to watch the last episodes you know they deal with their breakup he said I don't yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't. Well, the thing I'll never explain. Never Wait, hold a second. You watched this with your child, and he was yeah in into the past it? year. Oh yeah, he loved it. He yeah, said me too. Every, yeah. He said every song. I think I, I, think I want He said a kid. every. <laughs> he said every song is good. Yeah, every song is good. Yeah. And I, I'm like, yeah. Really, kids are this into this shit. The Beatles, well, the Beatles just make no, like, so kids much. Are into, like, kids well, are into like there, there is stuff. something about the if they, Beatles if they, that is very fundamental to children. And the documentary is perfect for it because they play so much music. Yeah. So and they like they switch. So it's not like you get these Full long songs. Yeah, you don't get these long swaths of like George Harrison explaining something. And if you do get a long take of his, it's like two minutes, and then they cut right to them playing. Like a so two. If you, so if you hate the Beatles, you should probably not have kids. Got it. Cool. <laughs> yeah. If you're if you're a big Kinks fan, you should avoid the Beatles, uh, or you should avoid you should avoid having kids. It might melt your heart. Uh, but it's 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 like a foundational thing. It's like a foundational thing for me. I think it's interesting that it came way before. 
No, I uh, got into that's so the thing. Not to cut I want to line cut you off. No, 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 like, okay, this is important though. Like you, you mentioned like you talked to your son, um, and you talked to like kind of your son, mm-hmm. and you got it brought down to you from your son. Like, like is that an important thing of the fact that like it has been brought down from your to your dad? I mean, JP mentioned he's kind of brought down to his son. I mean, have you brought down to like your daughter or son? Like, is is it kind of like a, a here's what I would say thing? Is that I f- I got gift I got gifted the Beatles. Yeah, it was just like a part of my existence when I was a kid. I didn't get gifted the Rolling Stones. My dad, I don't think my dad has any Rolling Stones records. So when I first heard like Exile when right. I was like seventeen, I was like, what the fuck? Is this? And I was like 22 before I heard Exile. And I and I hated the Stones before that. Yeah, and I was just like, "There's nothing like this in the whole world." There's there are the Beatles have no songs that are like Tumbling Dice. They just don't. They're the feel, like the groove. You know, (laughs) they just don't have anything like that. I, I like just sitting here now. I can feel tumbling dice like in my body, but I understand the Beatles in like a different way than like that's like a element that's like a that's like a sensual thing. The Beatles are like elemental. I don't understand how my blood vessels work. You know what I mean? I can't feel my blood vessels working, right, right. but I can feel like but, and, my and, when my stress level increases, my chest tightens up, and that's like the Rolling Stones. You know what I mean? But like the underlying like. Um, you know, implements of my myself. You know what I mean? Like my heart, my lungs. Like I don't think about breathing. That's just the Beatles. But it's in, which is weird. But yeah, go in preparation for this episode. Like, you know, people like you and me that this resounds so much with versus people who it just wouldn't or never seen it. I mean, we're musos. You know, or. What is it about us that this stuff is so impactful mm-hmm. to us? And th- and that's the thing. It's like it's archival. All all of this footage, to me, it was just like, oh my god, I'm so glad this footage exists. Yeah. And the same with anything for the Stones early or or whoever, any band, you know. Well, there's one what, of the, what is it? Well, about there's that? a moment in. It's that's the thing. It's hard for me to talk about now because it's hard for me to talk about when I first saw it because. In relation to when I think about it now, because I feel like how I think about it now has kind of overlapped it. There's a moment after when they talk about help, and they talk about writing help, and like you know, Paul has that kind of misremembering of like him writing help, and he's yeah. like, "Oh, help was this? Oh, no, uh, no, wait, help was actually this." And then there's a there's a video of the the guys playing live on a television show somewhere, um, playing help, and it's I wouldn't I don't know if it's the first time they ever played it live right. or whatever. But they have a new thing. The great part about the early part of this, this you know, episodes one through four or right. five maybe, yeah. is that when they get a new thing and they play They're it live. It yeah. So when John goes into the, help me if you can, you know, he fucking, he, you can see him dig in and get it. You know what I mean? He's yeah. not just kind of like playing the song like professionally, like a Beatles song. Right. We, th- we understand the Beatles to be this kind of like, you know, um, Uber studio band. Yeah, yeah, they're a studio band, but they're not. They were a fucking primal band, and you yeah. know what I mean. In that moment, they they couldn't they couldn't understand it intellectually. He had to understand it with his with his 
body. You know what I mean? And it's it's the reason why, like, when I think it's I think about a lot. Like, I don't think we've ever played House of Sound perfectly, and I actually don't even think we've played House of Sound really well. But it feels fucking awesome Good. to play House of Sound when because well. you can't do it unless you go get it. Right. And for everything else that the Beatles did, even when they were in the studio, which is the one of the other beauty things about this pod, or not this podcast, yeah, this podcast, um, about this documentary is that like even in the studio, when it worked, it was because they went to fucking get it. You know what I mean? They didn't just kind of sit back. Like Day in the Life works because John fucking melted onto that like thing and that's the best part of the documentary and which you'll see when you watch it is when George Martin like isolates John's voice and he's like just sitting there listening to it and he's like even here oh, you can great. even here you can hear it and I'm just like you fucking can hear it it's amazing there's nothing else like it there's no Rolling Stones record that like someone's gonna isolate Mick Jagger's voice they're gonna be like oh even here you can hear the transcend it's just gonna be like because he needs all that undergirding of like you know Keith Richards' guitar and the drums to kind of support it, oh, but, uh, but everything here seems like fucking magic. Least, I mean, for me, Mick Jagger is the least portion of the Stones. But I think each portion of the Stones by itself is the least portion of the Stones. Mm-hmm. So if you broke out a Keith Richards' guitar line, you'd be yeah, like, "He's the super least." But you, you'd be like, "That sounds like garbage." But combined with everything else, right. you're just like, "That feels amazing." Um, so like I think one of the things that we're gonna one of the things that me and my dad talk about a lot is that just it's it's weird the things that this means to us in the context that we understand it. So it's for him it's a kind of it's a kind of opening of this door that he always knew was there because he was there from the beginning, but he never got to see. Yeah. And for me it was like the opening of a new door, like a new entrance into something and to to understanding something. And I think in terms of what you were saying, Mario, about like giving it to our kids. I think you and me, JP, both feel like we did our kids a service yeah. by saying early on, like, this is important. Here, this is important. I don't need you to have a feeling about it now, but, but you need to know it. But what's funny is I didn't say anything. I was just no, watching. neither did I, I. I was just watching it, and he was like, Whoosh. "Yeah, like I'm just gonna hook it. I'm ready. This. I'm ready yeah. for this. Yeah, it's a real Kylo moment." But, and, and then JP passed him a lightsaber through time and space. Yeah, with a little cr- red cross. And then he went, mm. he shrugged and then cut a bunch of people in half. Oh man, if our kids joined forces, they would be, they would be dark side. Would they be dark side? Yeah, gonna... Oh, probably. Yeah. If my kid joined force, he would be non-existent. <laughs> Ladies, I think if the takeaway from this, from you watching this movie, is weirdly like I have to have a kid. Then, like yeah. that's weird. It's not. It's not. It's not how I take it. I'm I like, gotta have a kid. Like, um, but yeah. So all right, let's go now to my conversation with my dad, whose name is also Tom Nolan. Who doesn't sound anything like me? So you won't get us confused. Your dad's first name Tom. Yeah. Yeah. Are you Tom Nolan Jr.? No, no, I have a different middle name. Okay, so this is a very special episode. My dad is here. His name is also Tom Nolan. Why don't you, why don't you say hello, Dad? Hello, Dad. <sighs> did it. Ah. 
I wonder if so Mario has like a JP impersonation that he does. All right. So I wonder if he'll develop a Tom's Dead impersonation also. All right. But because we're doing it's Oktoberfest, so and because this is the beer we're gonna drink on the podcast when we record it, I brought some over with us. This is uh, who is oh Connecticut Valley Connecticut River Connecticut Valley Brewing. Where are they? At? They're South Windsor. I feel like there was a River Valley, but I don't know. I'm getting really confused. But yeah, Oktoberfest, we're still doing it. All right. So that's a Mars and Ale. It's a 5.8. We drank a 5.7 last week. That was pretty good. All right, we got to do this. Cheers. Cheers. That's pretty good. What do you think of that? It's smooth. It is smooth. It's pretty smooth. I like it. The Oktoberfest ones are weird because most of them just taste the same. Yeah. But various levels of like drinkable or less drinkable or like watery or smooth, but they're all that Mars and Oktoberfest flavor. Yeah. So the last one we had last week was, oh, what was it? I forget what it was, but it tasted very metally. Like it, yeah. had, it had a lot of minerally taste yeah. to it. So, yeah. Oh, this is smooth. Mm. All right. So I brought you in here, Dad, because we're at episode 15. And my episode 15, as I think the listeners will have already heard, not sure where I'm going to put this, like in the context of me and Mario kind of doing an introduction, and then we introduce the conversation, then me and Mario like do a little like wrap up, or I don't know what. <laughs> but it's the Beatles anthology. Oh man, hold on, I forgot who who directed it. Do you have that? I forgot to make notes. I didn't um, make notes. Let me uh, see. Anthology. I remember. I know the executive producer was Neil Aspinall. Yeah. Who yeah, was yeah. featured regularly. That was... I don't want the book. Come on, man. <laughs> well, the Neil Aspinall thing is really... Um, Bob Smeaton. Oh, Bob okay. Smeaton directed it. Does that mean anything to you? He directed a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, He directed... Let me see. Was so, he... Was he did was he also doing some of the interviews? Well, yeah, uh, Jules Holland was doing some of the interviews, yes. and then so it was Jules Holland sitting next to Paul in the boat. Yeah, I looked like him. Yeah, and then Paul is just staring out the window. I suppose paying attention to what he's you know what's out there on the water. Did you did you, there was a point? Did you think that there was maybe a point where he might want to tell the cameraman? to get out of the way so you could see what he was doing because it seemed like every so often like he was leaning to one side or the other to try to see where he was going in the boat well not even that but i was wondering if we would have gotten like a better interview like on those subjects that they talked about on the boat if he didn't also have to drive a boat right yeah (laughs) like actively driving like navigate a boat through like open waters yeah or not even open waters looked like it was a dock or something he was down a canal or something was going on well there's they actually well i don't again i don't know where he had the boat um but from uh, our experience in england a couple of years ago we actually saw one of the canals mm-hmm. um and one of the locks in the canal mm-hmm. where they you know raise the water up so that the boat can continue into the next section mm-hmm. and we literally sat there and watched as you know the block filled up with the water and hmm. kept going so it was kind of interesting you know experience and i wondered if he was on something like that that would be, in, I, I suppose, you, it just seems like such a weird choice. That seems like such, you have to be actively engaged with that that process. Yes. You can't just be like yeah. chatting to Jules Holland. Right. 
Um, so yeah, Bob Smeaton, I got a little IMDb biography here. He's a double Grammy Award winner, I'm assuming just for this. Prior to working in film and television, Bob was a lead vocalist with the rock band White Heat. Do you know White Heat? No. You got any White Heat records? I do not. Uh, bah, bah, bah. He worked um, with the Beatles, Elton John, The Who, Pink Floyd, The Doors, Queen Nirvana, Mark Knopfler, and The Spice Girls. Oh, yeah, he did that Spice Girls movie. Oh, that's the probably, where, on he the Spice Girls. That's probably that's, where he got his Grammy. Right, maybe. That's that's where the name sounds so familiar besides this. Yes. Um, all right, so The Beatles Anthology, the year is 1995. It's uh, November, which I don't I don't know if I knew that it was November. That's so close to Thanksgiving. Mm. But maybe like I don't and it like when I was looking it up, it was it aired on the nineteenth, November nineteenth. Like the first two parts aired, or the first two and a half parts, or three parts, because it was only on three nights. It's only on three nights, and they didn't show everything. Mm. So what you see in the actual you know DVD now is everything, right? You know, where they cut some sections out, which makes you wonder, you know, um, and, and I made note of it. Like, mm-hmm. How many times could we see the Beatles perform All My Loving live? Yeah, good. And we're going to talk about that, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or a couple of those songs. There's, or um, um, I saw her standing there. There yeah. was like, seemed like there was an I saw her standing there in almost every context you could get. And I saw her standing yes. there yeah. playing for like British audiences or like. American audiences playing on the radio, like a first like attempt at it, yeah. playing it in the Cavern Club, like whatever. There yeah. was, yeah. you know, I saw her standing there all the time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it aired on the 19th, and then it aired, the next two parts aired on, and however they broke up the parts then, aired on the 22nd and the 23rd. Right. Um, 9 to 11, so two hours. The commercials are evident. Like, even when you watch the DVDs, they didn't bother to kind of edit out the commercial drops, you know, that yep. went yep. to black in the commercials. Yep. Do you remember watching those? Yes. Because I remember watching those. I do. Yeah. I have two. I have, I was thinking about this. I have three specific, maybe there's more. Like, I remember you watching, like, Yukon win its first national title. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we, I think it was, I think me and Eric were upstairs, and I don't, I don't know if you were home yet um, mm-hmm. from work, but I remember that. I remember some, like, sports stuff. But I have, like, three specific music TV instances. One of them is this one. One of them is watching the VH1 Top 100, like albums, oh, yeah. like when they did yeah. with Je- Jeff Bridges hosted, right. and just kind of having like every two seconds being like, "Wait, what record is that?" Yeah, and you either and you knew most of them, but there was also like this was like my first introduction to Jeff Buckley, mm-hmm. and I was just like, "Whoa, where the <laughs> this record come from? come from?" Yeah, um, and then the other one was I remember we were over at Grammy and Grampy's house, and the Grammys were on. And mom must have been over there doing something, and they would just let me watch the Grammys. It was like the mid '90s, and then Live was playing, and the lead singer of Live's shirt like disappeared mid song, and Grampy was like, "I wish I had a shirt like that," and I was like, <laughs> "That's that's so weird." But I remember watching this, like sitting down, and it was like kind of a big deal, like just like sitting in front of the TV and watching like the history of the Beatles. Right. And now, for those people who don't know, the Beatles are your well, obviously, you people don't know yeah. <laughs> because you don't know my dad. The Beatles are your but favorite. But if you knew me, yeah, if you did know him, and yeah. maybe like there's, you know, there's, there's a few people out there that maybe a coworker know. of yours has been listening the whole time, being like, "Is that Tom's son?" Yeah, <laughs> that guy sounds like an idiot. Um, they're your favorite band. Yes, yeah. So, uh, and it goes back um, literally to when they were on Ed Sullivan, um, and my uncle Dick Fortunato. Um, 
either had the good fortune or misfortune, depending upon how you're looking at it, of actually having meet the Beatles. Okay. And he lent it to us. Mm-hmm. And we wore it out, literally. Nice. Um, and it became, um, you know, a, an obsession for several years after to the point that um, one year um, – my, uh, you know, Uncle Carl, Uncle Mike, um, my two next youngest brothers, and I um, went out as three quarters of the Beatles. <laughs> um, and the following year, mm-hmm. we went as the Yogi Beatles. What are the Yogi Beatles? Oh, 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 like so we had Yogi Maharish. Bear masks on. No, no, no. We oh. had Yogi Bear masks on <laughs> with mop tops. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why not? I don't think I've ever heard that before. Yes. Yeah. Um, but so we, we, we grew, I grew up listening to the Beatles. You know what I mean? They were kind of all around. I actually don't think you ever was just like, listen, this is the Beatles. No. Like, just take it in. Yeah. Um, and I think kind of the same thing happened a little bit with um, my little guy and that um, um, I don't think I ever sat down and was just like, you need to listen to this. Like, right now, you will like this. I think it was just one of those things where at some point he just seemed old enough that he would get it. Mm-hmm. And whoa, lo and behold, he was just like, I like this. Yeah. And then, you know, we got him some other Beatles stuff. Um, but I do remember thinking at the time, like, that this was a necessary viewing experience. Like, that I was going to know everything that I was going to know about the Beatles. Or that I had, I needed to know or wanted to know from, not just like from this documentary about the Beatles, but literally from the three, you know, alive Beatles telling you what you needed to know. And then, you know, cutting that with interviews from Neil Aspinall and like the kind of not really valuable interviews with Derek Taylor. Yeah. Um, (laughs) I wish I had like... Close captions for those because I'm not 100% sure what he was saying at every given moment. I think it would be interesting to kind of string together everything he said in like one, you know, monologue. Mm-hmm. And it would be like so meaningless drivel. Right. That yeah, just, yeah. You know, strings of sentences together that mean absolutely nothing. I mean, is that just his personality? Well, you know, I think it's interesting as, as their press manager or. <laughs> Yeah. You would have thought he would have been much more eloquent about mm-hmm. things. Yeah, yeah. Um and it just like wasn't at all there. No. At any point. Yeah, it was weird because you kept wanting to and maybe we can maybe talk about flaws a little bit or whatever. One of the things I thought was uh, towards the middle of the documentary I thought it would have been good to have another voice mm-hmm. besides the four main speakers. Right. Um actually was there anyone else? I think it's just the five of them. That do and interviews, right? George Martin. And George Martin. Well, and that's so that's I want to get to there too. Yeah. Yeah. So that um I, and at that in the that middle period where I want another voice, it was when George Martin was gone because those part seven and and actually maybe I should frame this. So the Beatles anthology was a kind of a big deal for me in terms of like, you know, I just kind of carried it around. Like I watched the Beatles anthology and then we got the DVDs and I watched them again. Mm-hmm. And I just assumed that what we watched was what was on the DVDs. Yeah. It didn't even occur to me that they like added extra stuff. Right. But that was really, um, so, you know, for 15, I put almost famous at 17 and that was really, I don't know if you listened to that episode, but that was really about like, being a fan you know what i mean like what it means to just kind of like be a super fan of of music but by the time i watched these dvds again and kind of like had to reprocess and reorient myself to like the beatles anthology like it was a kid memory and then i was going to have a new memory i was playing i was playing music Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and i was writing music and i was like heavily engaged in 
not trying to become a musician. Um, cause I actually don't, maybe I did try to get famous. I don't actually remember ever actively trying to be like, you know, you know, to get out of here and on the back of like some tune, you know what yeah. I mean? I always thought just like playing one show was just like, I was like, well, that's, that's great. good. Yeah. We played that one show. But the thing, so we've moved from being a fan to being actively engaged in like, in how something works. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of where I, um, that's one of the ways I, I, I kind of constantly gravitate toward this when I think about my own stuff in that watching this, watching the, the development of the greatest band of all time. And I'll put that in air quotes for people that don't believe it, but I actually have been thinking about this a lot, uh, you know, and you compare them to some of the other bands that were around there, like the who and the Rolling Stones and the kinks. And I'm just going to say those four, because everyone else is either like a solo, like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton were also kicking around there, but just like from a band perspective, mm-hmm. the Beatles were doing stuff that like nobody else was doing. And one of the great things about the early, um, the early discs there and those are the ones that Mario, Mario will have seen so I'm interested in what he thinks about it although I'm going to say he's going to think nothing because he's not like a big Beatles guy which is why you are here yeah. um, is when they put the Beatles up against when they show another person a contemporary not like Chubby Checker and not Little Richard mm-hmm. um, not Elvis even but when they stack it up against like Jerry and the Pacemakers <laughs> you know what I mean or um uh, I don't know, just like one of the, I feel like they, they they show a bunch of, oh, when they were talking about like, when like Skiffles there or The Shadow, yeah. was that the band, The Shadows? The Shadows, yeah. When like they show like, oh, everyone's doing this and like we're doing something else. The Beatles just seemed more real. Yeah. And, I, and so now one of the things that I wonder is that, is it because they have all this, there's all this history attached to them or were they just that much better? Like even when the, when the Rolling Stones were doing, um, Oh, what's that song that they, the Beatles wrote that they gave the Rolling Stones? I Want to Be Your Man. I Want to Be Your Man. The Beatles one seems definitive, where the Rolling Stones one seems to be something else. It, se- it seems more in line with the Rolling Stones cover than it does like an actual song. Yeah. yeah. How many times can you say that something that Ringo sang exceeds something that Mick Jagger sang? Right, yeah. And it, and it really you know, it really is, you know, a pale comparison yeah and and you're right what about you know what is it about the beatles that makes it so much more alive Mm -hmm. um than than what the rolling stones did but yeah i mean you know i'm I'm trying to think because i mean they never really showed the dave clark five Mm -mm. or the hollies um, they mentioned Herman's Hermits. They mentioned her Well, I think somebody, you know, that one interview when they did the 65 tour mm-hmm. of the U.S. And the one guy who kept trying to find somebody oh, yeah, at Chase yeah, yeah. Stadium to say, oh, no. That they were know, terrible? The Beatles are awful. Yeah. You know? and, the, and, and one guy, I moved, you know, or one, one girl moved on to the Herman's, Herman and her and the Hermits. Yeah, yeah, Like, hey, good call there. Um <laughs> But yeah, I mean, you know, when you think about the fact that they were so, um, they, you know, yes, they had George Martin to take their ideas and and translate them, and yes, they, you know, obviously got into more instrumentation and things like that. But at the end of the day, it was you know their their writing and the ideas and the variety. Mm. I mean, when you get to it and really think about the variety of stuff that they produced, Mm -hmm. you know, in the way of sound Mm -hmm. and song structure and everything else, you know, you can't, you know, even for, for a band like the Stones who obviously are still 
you know, producing albums periodically. <laughs> um, I mean, their music doesn't sound that much different. No. Than it did, you know, back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are elements that are definitely different, but, you know, it's still, you know, it, 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 you know, yes, they developed as better songwriters and, and yeah, they have, a, you know, a lot of classic songs and albums and stuff like mm-hmm. that, but they don't sound that much different. No, it's, it's, it's not so much, um, it's never been so much the songwriting for me when they sounded different. It's like feel, like Exile feels different than like, you know, um, like one of the early like Stones records. Yeah. Like, I, and I just can't think of any because I just don't, I don't really think about yeah, the Stones that I much. Don't, I don't either. Um, but even like when they sounded different, even in like the late 60s when they were kind of going through their, like they're going through their hit records and stuff like that when mm-hmm. they were doing let it bleed and exile right. and then you know goat's head soup, soup and, and yeah. all that stuff yeah they had different stuff on them you know what i mean one of them was more country and yeah. one of them was like dirtier and yeah. one of them was more whatever yeah but they're really just like the stones mm-hmm. one of the things that i find so fascinating about the beatles anthology is the way in which one from a from a film perspective from its quality perspective i love those scenes when the camera just kind of pans around a black and white white room and you just kind of listen to uh, rehearsal tapes yeah. or all the different takes or yeah. just them chatting about like what they're doing. So you don't even really hear that much music. You just yeah. kind of hear the in-between things. Right. Because one of the things that I think a lot of kids that grow up with parents that like were first generation Beatles fans is that if you respond to that music, you just think it fell from the sky. Yeah. You know what I mean? You If someone hands you the Beatles first record, it still has... You know, I saw her standing there on it, which is better than, I don't know, like 95% of other songs that have been written since that record came out. Right. And then even watching this thing, you know, you have Please Please Me and I Feel Fine. And these are like early stuff. And like, I just, I love the George Martin interaction with like the Please Please Me when he's just like, you know, I'm looking for songs still. Like, cause I, you know, and I think I know a hit song yeah. and that's when he, they, they do the, um, how you do what you do to me. Right. Um, when they they do it and it's fine, he's like, but then he's like, what do you have? And they are just like, well, here's please please me, and he's just like, well, that's you know, that's a hit. So even at their like earliest moments, they were developing these and writing these songs, but the the movie doesn't make it seem like it just kind of like they were there yeah. and they were four guys from Liverpool and there was no such per- person as Pete Best or Stu Sutcliffe, and then all of a sudden like, oh, please please me was just like birthed out of the ether. Yeah. No, it makes it a point and I especially and that's why I like the first I really like the first two discs because it makes a point of showing for a long time all that all the time they spent in Germany. All the time they spent in the Cavern Club. All it goes through all of their influences. So you know they've just kind of taken in all of this stuff and they i mean and they talk about it too they talk about it a lot um where paul would say like we you know there was a little bit of this and then we you know he heard that and so there's a little bit of that in Mm -hmm. there and then they kind of put all that stuff together and as a musician i even refer to that now when i work and like it gives me a lot of freedom to kind of like pull from stuff right although I don't know if you listened to my last record. Did you know I ripped off a Robert Palmer song on there? I don't. I have to go back and re-listen to it again. I didn't know that I did it, <laughs> but it's um, the song. It's like what's that song? That Robert Palmer song? I don't know the lyrics. Uh, well, it's, it's you know, it, it could be uh, "Bad Case of Loving You" or um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean that's the one that I don't know. that's but, the one I was thinking yeah. of when you started doing it. I'll sh- oh, we'll, we'll listen to I'll it and you'll be like, that. oh, geez. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it allows me to rip off Robert Palmer songs and feel like. I'm not like ripping them off because I've absorbed it somehow and not necessarily Robert Palmer. I was just joking, but I've like absorbed it and I'm not just pushing it out into the world as like my own thing. Mm -hmm. It's, it's an influence and it's, and I've taken, I've taken what like Robert Pollard was doing or Lou Barlow was doing and I've, and I've put my own like thing on it and twisted it up and then it comes out like a, like a Tom Nolan tune or a Mm -hmm. Joyner Ernest song. Um, So for me, that was like the early, so the early stuff is always like that. I mean, I when you watched the the early parts of the documentary, was there stuff in there? Because I didn't. I like. I guess I knew they went to Germany. I guess I I heard the the words like the Cavern Club, um, and I knew they were from Liverpool. Right. Was there stuff in the early part of that documentary that you when or maybe I'll put it a different way. When you sat down to watch this documentary, what were you looking for? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, you know, having lived through a lot of it um, at various levels of connection. Mm-hmm. So, like, really into them when they were first came out. That that White Album period was like, oh, you know, when they went to India, it was like they dropped off the face of the earth. Oh, sort really? Sort of, yeah, okay. for me. Um, you know, to the point where um, <laughs> I remember a grammar school dance at Live Oaks. Mm-hmm. And somebody was playing. Um, somebody wanted to play "Back to the USSR" uh-huh. as one of the dance songs. Oh yeah! I'm like, what the hell is that? <laughs> where, like, where did that come from? Oh, it's on the White Album. Like the White Album. Um, oh man, yeah. I can't even believe. Yeah, that, that and happened. then after, and they, and then after that, I was back into them again. Right. It was like from you know, transition back. Um, so yeah, like I, I mean, I knew they were from Liverpool. I knew they had the stint in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that, you know, the cavern, they were big in the cavern club. I think what I was looking, what I started looking at was, um, some of the different elements that maybe didn't register the first time I watched it Mm -hmm. or the first time I watched it, even the first time I watched the DVDs, Mm -hmm. um, like, you know, the rocket 88 reference Mm -hmm. in the first disc, um, you know, and, you know, having, seen and read a lot more lately about how they consider that to be the first rock and roll song mm-hmm. now and to hear it actually you know a snippet of it in the um as a again as an influence um i actually wrote down when you know george said that he had absorbed a lot of jimmy rogers and paul was buddy holly and mm-hmm. ringo said frankie lane yeah. like <laughs> ringo has the worst days <laughs> like frankie lane <laughs> And then they showed Frankie Lane and just like, no, Ringo, don't yeah. like that. Frankie Lane. Well, and then, you know, later on when, you know, he says, yeah, all, all my, all the songs that I wrote, I just ripped off, you know, I just rewrote some other song uh-huh. that had been very famous. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So looking at, you know, looking at some of those things and I was like trying to pick up on um, uh, elements of, um the the personalities and how things that happened in the early days eventually led to some of what happened in the later days mm-hmm. like like what yeah like um george said about paul he said um you know he said uh, even now you know he treats me like he's 9 months older than right, me right right you know and i'm like yeah I, yeah you know 
you know, like nine months was such a big deal yeah, at the yeah. time. And Paul trying to explain why nine months was such a big deal at the time. <sighs> freaking, and then freaking he Paul. like you know he's you know George under his thumb all this time. Um, and I think the other thing that I appreciated and it was really throughout, <clears throat> but you know started right from that first disc and going forward was you know. Um, George's sense of humor mm-hmm. and oh, why he would have aligned, why the why he and Monty Python were just destined oh, to so, be together. You couldn't take. There was a part, a portion like I feel like it's like the middle, the like the middle second third. If that makes, if you're like, I don't even know if that makes any sense. <laughs> There's a period where he's like laughs after everything he says. Yeah, and he's like he's just joking the whole. And you're like, is he? being serious or like what and i think he was being serious i think, I think he just finds it really funny yeah um but yeah that the, the george it's funny because that came out a lot to me too when i watched it like the george personality actually the personalities i i, I recognize paul's person i've been recognizing paul's personality for a while and he actually strikes me as a weird kind of so when we and I kind of, I, I don't know if you heard the last Waltz episode and I mentioned, I know I mentioned it to you, but me and Mario, Mario's kind of was fascinated at how much Robbie Robertson sucked when we <laughs> talked about the last Waltz. And he's, right. and you remember, do you remember when the sticks behind the music came out? Oh yes. And like Dennis DeYoung was like, and I think I even mentioned this on the episode, Dennis DeYoung was like a villain. He was like a legitimate villain. He was TV Guide's villain of the year. Which is hilarious. Which is hilarious. But like. Paul's got a little bit of that in here. Yeah. And it's not like a lot. And he doesn't, it's not, he was trying to ruin the band. But as the thing goes on, and especially after Brian Epstein dies, like Paul's, and I think this is where the document, documentary is really well made because I think they kind of start framing that really early on that Paul's got kind of a different idea of what's going on than literally everybody else. Mm-hmm. And then George and John almost seem like they have a kind of congruent image of what it meant to be a beetle. And then Ringo's idea is different too, but Ringo's is Ringo's and is not like affecting the day to day nature yeah. of like what the band is. Right. Right. No, I think you're definitely right. But I think it does. It, you know, it's, it's interesting in the way that they put the documentary together. And, it, you know, I, you know, at first, like I noticed that, um, and, and obviously it changes over the course of, of the entire thing that, you know, um Ringo Ringo's first few interviews are in this, you know, he's got a bad haircut. It's in a bad setting. I mean, it just Is it the lean back way too far? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and George um you know, the first you know, first he's he's he doesn't have a mustache and then he's got this really bad mustache with kind of short hair, but it's it it's it's not like flattering to them. Mm-hmm. And you know, Every time you turn around, Paul's in a different setting. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you know he's well lit, and he's With concert like, yeah, like, almost like he stepped off stage from yeah. a sound check on that one my, time. I'm in my studio. I'm on. You know, I'm getting ready to go on stage. Um, when he did Eleanor Rigby in Silhouette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was weird. Yeah, it was like. Um, so I, I just happened to, you know, I was, I did the same kind of thing. I, I looked online and, and, um, I guess this guy, Richard Buskin mm-hmm. wrote the complete idiot's guide to the Beatles. Oh, okay. And his reference to the anthology was that it's not a definitive story of their history, but a diploma, a diplomatic celebration. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Right. Yeah. Because it doesn't, you know, while they, while there's references to things that went horribly you know or that led to the breakup mm-hmm. um 
it's not like really dwelled upon um, other, other than the whole Paul George thing during the Let It Be sessions mm-hmm. when, you know, George, you know, tell me what to play and I'll play. Right, yeah. Um, so, you, you know, you just got the senses that, to your point, Paul could have kept the Beatles going forever, I think. I think he was meant to, yeah. Yeah. And George and and John both were like, you know, you know, they could set aside the Beatles and do their thing. Mm-hmm. And I think even George at various points were like, you know, we could be away for, you know, a period of time and then we'll come back and do some Beatles stuff. Mm-hmm. And it just got to a point where they, you know, never were able to do that again. Right. And that's, I mean, in George references, you know, when George kind of starts writing songs a lot, he's like, at first in the 60s, I didn't, in the mid 60s, I didn't have like a backlog of songs. Yeah. He's like, and then towards the end of the 60s, I, I did. And they both kind of felt this self-consciousness against bringing them to Lennon and McCartney to be kind of done whatever to. Yeah. Um, but I think, oh, damn it, I lost my point. Um, oh, but I think to that point, Paul's, you get a sense, you get a sense really early on, I think, and this is where I think the documentary really benefits like a person like me like, or, or a musician or something like that, or a person that has like a relatively rational view of the Beatles, which I think is elevated because of like my history with them, is that even from, so it's even not what they say, it's not the things that they say, and it's not like the ancillary things that the Beatles are doing, like mm-hmm. starting, like starting Apple, yeah. the store or the label, right. um, or, you know, the Magical Mystery Tour, which <laughs> Paul may or may not have been solely responsible for. And I made this comment to to Nicolette when we were watching it. Like Paul's working on one thing, you know. what I mean, Paul's mm-hmm. vision of 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 music is this, mm-hmm. but then there's always John there to kind of balance it out with something, you know, more intense, something a little weirder. Even yeah. when the music, even when their music overall wasn't weird, like Help is still like a weird yeah for the Beatles it's just different and that's one of the things I love about this documentary and so I one of my favorite if if I had to do like a pivotal film moment things the introduction of George Martin into this thing is kind of like one of the pivotal film moments mm. for me because it's just this this kind of like the voice of God kind of telling you legitimately what was happening at any given moment when they were recording something when they were working on something it's like a it's totally objective yeah um he you know, he could be subjective. He made his whole life basically on like doing this stuff, mm-hmm. but it seems totally objective. Um, and so the, uh, you know, they're working on all this stuff and he's giving them these suggestions and he's commenting on things. And then I love when they come up with something new. And this is like, this is an early part of the, this is an early part of the documentary thing. Cause it doesn't happen at all later in the documentary because they stop playing live. Yeah. So when they get a new thing, like, and I'm talking about help, the first live performance that they show of help, like after they talk about like the writing of help, mm. those guys are like digging in to that. So I, it's on some TV show, but it's one of the ones where yeah. they're actually playing live. Right. And every time they um, go into the chorus, I guess, although the song doesn't really have a chorus, it's got, it's just this kind of mm, series right, of kind of, of pre-choruses yeah. and, and bridges and stuff like that. But when they go, help me, like John just kind of like goes down and gets it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, and George and, and Paul are like singing along, but they're all like they're going to get it. And it's before and because it's on TV, like everyone's not screaming their heads off so you can hear it. So they're not playing sloppily, but they're just playing hard. They're right. playing really, really hard. Yeah. And it's and that's not like that's not like a Paul thing either. 
because you can see it in those some of those performances. Like there's performances where Ringo goes crazy. Oh yeah, you. I love the. I love. I forget which performance it is when he's just like playing like uh, across his 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 snare and his tom. Like yeah. he's not doing anything else. Yeah. Um, and then there's that you know that help thing. There's obviously the Shea Stadium show where like John's playing with his elbows, and you even get a like George isn't really doing that much, but there's a couple of like wonky solos in there where he's yeah. like seems like he's just kind of playing whatever. He's not getting into it. Paul's always, even on stage, is very Paul. Yes. And to the point of his just completely insane, like pre, like between song, like comments on like what they're going to happen. Like, dude, you have 20 minutes to play. Just play another song. No one cares where this song came from. Just shut up and play the song. Well, and, and, you know, you've heard the live at Hollywood Bowl. Mm. I mean, it's, I mean, that's anything that you saw of them performing live. He does. I mean, he does that. I mean, like endlessly. Um, And you're, you're just like, yeah, you're right. You know, let's move on to the next song. Well, that's the thing. So the live at the Hollywood Bowl thing is great because I didn't, I don't think I actually actively heard live at the Hollywood Bowl. I'm sure you played it around and I'm sure maybe I heard pieces of it, but until I was like in my thirties, I didn't like sit down and like listen to live at the Hollywood Bowl and the dizzy Miss Lizzie on live at the Hollywood Mm. Bowl is punk rock. Like it's hard rock. It's so heavy. They're playing it so fast and Ringo's so on and but the, I think the thing that bothers me the most about like the whole Paul thing is that even like really early on in the band, you can feel how Paul is carrying this this band with his bass. Mm-hmm. So there's things that you take for granted as a Beatles fan. Yeah. In the songs, which is like certain amounts of movement. You know what I mean? Like it grooves in a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's it's really bouncy and like it's really effervescent and kind of all even even like the heavier stuff like has this thing. When you watch the documentary and you watch them play live, you get to see that George and John are most of the time just strumming stuff. Yeah. So all the movement comes from Paul. Yeah. All the movement comes from the bass. Yeah. And it's something that, like, I really, I forget when I'm not watching the documentary. And then when I pick the documentary back up, I'm just like, well, he's doing, he's doing all the work yeah. here. I, 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 you know, um, just even on Love Me Do, mm-hmm. you know. The baseline on "Love Me Do" is is ridiculous. Yeah, um, and it just kind of sets the tone. I actually found it interesting because I've always thought of Paul, um, you know, the atypical um, elbow up, yeah, you know, plucking away at the bass. Mm-hmm. And I've always seen Paul as more of a elbow down with the with the pick mm-hmm. playing the bass. So it was funny kind of seeing him play live on a couple of songs. Where, with the just, elbow yeah. up kind of thing, um, but yeah, I mean his you know his bass playing right from the get go, um, you know, it's it's odd to hear a song where he's not propelling the music right with his bass, and and obviously Ringo with you know just like hammering away, <laughs> which he hated, <laughs> yeah, which, which he, at which so he, hated. he grew to hate it seemed like, yeah. Um, yeah. but that's I mean it's it's you got to see it. And that's where the documentary, I think, is so great. Yeah. And I suppose now you could just watch it all on YouTube. But in 1995, I imagine it was just like, whoa. Because like, I think that's that's probably where the real novelty of the documentary came in, is that you got to see footage. And that's why they left so much of the footage in, probably. Yeah, right. The full concert, like full, in quote unquote, um, concerts and stuff. Is that like, no one got to see this stuff. You're, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Because, uh, you know, when you stop and think about it, you saw them play live on Ed Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. We didn't see the shows that they played in the UK. Mm-hmm. 
you know, nobody could see them play on tour, you know, right. relatively speaking. It's not like they played, you know, every stadium that was available or or any every theater that was available. They picked certain cities and that was it. Right. People in the Midwest <clears throat> probably never saw them. Right. <clears throat> not even, like, uh, did they, they, they do a Chicago thing? They probably did a Chicago thing, but that was probably as close as they got. Um, did they play in Texas? Uh, probably. They probably played Dallas or... Oh, okay. Houston or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you never got to see him play live. So even when I was in college, you know, seeing, um, I think it was a double bill, um, or maybe I saw him in two different nights, um, live at the Chase Stadium show mm-hmm. and um, that Japan show. Oh, the Budokan? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing them perform live was something that you you just didn't see. So I I would agree with you that you know all of that live footage, all of that live performance um is something that's really remarkable to the point that when you see, you know, the last concert up on the on the roof, yeah. um you know, you're still you know fascinated by their ability to play live. Well, we'll get there and I think but I think just to because you mentioned it, one of my favorite things about the documentary one of my favorite moments in the documentary is when they show the street yeah view and you get the sound and maybe it wasn't i don't know if it was live sound maybe they just did it mm-hmm. but it gives you the impression of like what it was maybe like to hear it yeah and you're still just like yeah i would have stayed like mm-hmm. i would have stuck around yeah. i would have i would have also run through the streets trying to find out where it was coming from yeah even though i couldn't hear it very much like that that's John Lennon, like singing something yeah. somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> like I'm gonna go. I'm gonna I'm go, gonna go find thing. it. Yeah. Um. So that's that's we did a good. Do you have anything else on the early discs that you kind of want to to mention? Um, I I think the only um, the only thing that I found interesting, um, and I'm probably thinking more in terms of bands today. Uh huh. Was um, the frequency with which they did variety shows mm. and did comedy on variety shows and did it well oh well they're just like comedy geniuses uh, and i and it just you know they just happened to have personality yeah every one of them had had personality and to the point where everybody thought that you know george was the quiet one and blah 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 he wasn't at all I no mean, he, was... he had a very dry sense of humor mm-hmm. Um, where the others perhaps were a little more, you know, outgoing about it. But yeah, I mean, who would, you know, pick any band today yeah, and, yeah. and who, who could you even, you know, suggest would do any of that kind of stuff? Well, no one. I mean, I think as an indie rock guy, I think some of the early Guided by Voices stuff, like, you know, if you're a fan, you're just like, you know, Tobin Sprout songs sound like this and Pollard songs sound like this, but that's, we're really stretching it there. Mm-hmm. But GBV owes like a heavy debt of gratitude to the Beatles. No. <laughs> For sure. I mean, they love the who, but they're also like a Beatles band. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing, oh, and I think the thing that I, I wanted to mention too, in, in terms of that, what you had said before about the idea that it was a, it was a diplomatic celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no relationship stuff in here. No. So you <clears throat> didn't get the, like, I, I suppose one of the things I knew is that, Paul was in a relationship with somebody for a long time before he married Linda. But yeah. the first time they ever mention anything about Paul being in a relationship with anybody is when he marries Linda in like the seventh disc or something. Right, right. Which is which is interesting because prior to that, you know, you see him in places like even in India. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was with Jane Asher. Yep. Um, 
Peter Asher's sister, Peter Asher, Peter and Gordon, Peter Asher, who managed Linda Ronstadt's career and everything else. Um, but yeah, you know, no mention of Ringo's wife, Maureen. Mm-hmm. Um, they did, I mean, they mentioned Patty Boyd, yeah. which I thought was kind of but I thought it was odd. A, I thought it was just because it was necessary and because George mentioned it. Yeah. Like yeah. he was he had said like yeah. I was with Patty or like, right. you know, right. something. Yeah. Um and the and the press conference where uh, somebody asked about John's wife. Mm-hmm. And everybody's like, oh, you know, yeah, like big yeah, secret, yeah. like, you know, nobody's supposed to know that John's married. Um which was kind of how he wanted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if you read, you know, the autobiographies you know, biographies about him and stuff like that, he didn't want people to know he was married, but yet he was, mm-hmm. you know, and had a son and everything else. Well, and there's some there's some shots of Julian later on. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, I don't know how you felt about that, but for me, it's one of the things that I like about this because it frames it as a band thing. Yeah, it's more. It's, it's, it's about the music. It's about yeah, the band. Right. It's about and anything else ancillary that kind of gets added to it is really in kind of it's in there to to um as a something to set against like what they were doing so like when the apple stuff was happening it was kind of against the fact that like nobody was working and john was doing like two virgin stuff and like all this other stuff you know what i mean yeah so it was just to show how they weren't making any music right but other than that, they were ma- even when they were, when they were married, they were making music literally all the time. Like yeah. even when they showed them on holiday somewhere, when they were going to buy that island, yeah. there's always someone's always uh, playing a guitar, right? You know, and John and George both talk about how much stuff they wrote. Um, and in, in, I suppose we'll get to that too. But I love one of the other scenes I love is um, when they're talking about how like the stuff John wrote when he was in India, mm-hmm. and you know he's got Dear Prudence and he's you know all this other stuff and. George and Paul is like, Paul's like, I wrote, I will. Yeah. And he's like, played, I will. I was like, Oh, Paul, like, come on. I'm trying to remember if that's, uh, um, yeah, I, I think somewhere, I don't remember if it's in Rob Sheffield's book or not, you know, the, Oh, the dreaming the, the Beatles book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Where the, you know, if you do the single disc white album, what are you leaving out? And I don't remember if why I will is one of those ones. I think Martha. I think he mentions Martha, my dear. I love Martha. Oh, would be one of the on ones there. that would be left out in what? his view. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, and it's it does. And I think this is you didn't hear, despite you know everything that was said in the in the years right immediately after that mm-hmm. Yoko broke up the Beatles. There's a little bit of it. There, Paul kind of hints at it, but it's not. But it, he mentions they don't it, lean on it. Yeah, and he doesn't. You know, he he. You know, seems to at least now. You know, in in the in the you know. Well, in I would the, hope so. In the she's, documentary, she's an executive producer yeah, on that thing. Also, um, that he's like, you know, he, they, he was in love and blah blah blah. Um, and you know, what was the you know was it really a big deal? It probably was. The fact that to your earlier point, it was the four of them and George Martin, mm-hmm. and now Yoko is sitting next to John. Right, and Constantly. then it, and it, I thought one of the things I picked up on this this viewing, which I hadn't ever noticed before, was that weirdo thirty seconds where amazing Alex, yeah, like creeps yeah. in, and like so John was trying to get this this weirdo, <laughs> like this electronics wizard, to make them a studio, and George is like he didn't even do anything. He had like all these little speakers, and then Neil comes in, and he's just like, yeah, we had to rip the whole place okay. apart. We just brought the portable in and yeah. finished the record there. Right. Um, and then you know George Martin right after that is like I'll make another record with you if you if you want to do it right, right like yeah. I'll do yeah. it right. all right so we're gonna get the middle discs I think are are odd because they're making 
Rubber Soul and Revolver get kind of short shrift in a way yeah. because they kind of or the making of them because that whole time there even when they're talking about not touring anymore they're still going to the Philippines mm-hmm. they're still like so they're playing Nowhere Man um there's right. that weirdo scene when the three of them are together when they're having I don't it looked like a I don't know where they were it looked like a like a like a vent like cabin or something like that I don't know, it didn't look like somebody's house drinking tea at a huge round table and they're talking about how paul's talking about like nowhere man was hard to do live oh yeah like we sure, were sure. doing something right. that couldn't that you couldn't do live and right. paul and george was like it wasn't that hard and paul was like well it was hard yeah the harmonies were it, hard. it wasn't easy yeah yeah it wasn't hard but it wasn't it was easy. easy yeah and then they do it and yeah the harmonies aren't spot on and i get that but i think it was because that was the idea that they were going to stop touring kind of overtook the making of what I think are probably pretty seminal records. Mm-hmm. Do you have a theory as to why they didn't like, they didn't spend more time on like getting those done? Was it because they were making, they weren't making any movies in, right? No, no. Yeah. So, cause, well, yeah. Cause Norwegian, it's hide your love away is I always want to think that the Norwegian, it's Norwegian wood that he's playing in that, in the help yeah. clip that they yeah. showed when he's, you know, they're all in that cabin. Right. Um, but it's not, it's hide your love away. But yeah, yeah, they. Do you have a th- a thought onto why they kind of like? I I don't. And and if there were you know if, if there was a criticism, you know, I think there were um, elements where you know you you really did wish that they had spent more time, mm-hmm. you know, talking about you know how it came together. To your point, they they are, you know, two of the greatest you know albums of all time. Mm-hmm. No matter what the latest Rolling Stone, we're not talking about that. Yeah. I literally okay. said to myself in my mind, like, we're not going to talk yeah. about that. Um, but anyway, um, <clears throat> oh, I do want to see that list when we're done. Yeah, um, yeah. I w- I wish that there had been more about that, and I don't, you know, like I I don't think it was, you know, it just makes you wonder, um, you know, that maybe there wasn't as much footage that they could find, maybe. Um, but yeah, it just, it felt really weird. And I don't remember now who said it, you know, that, you know, oh yeah, Revolver and Rubber Soul were kind of like, you know. George said it, yeah. Yeah, two, you know. But he liked those records. Oh yeah, Yeah. he liked them a lot. Yeah. And, and, you know, he had, obviously there was so much on there Mm -hmm. um, that they probably could have, you know, you probably could do a a separate documentary just on those two albums if you, if you really wanted to. And it would be interesting. It would have been interesting to hear what George Martin said about them that you didn't get to hear in, in, you know, the anthology, um, you know, how the guys felt about, you know, the songs that they were making and, and, Mm -hmm. and you started to get, you know, it started, I think that's where you really started to get that separation, Mm -hmm. um, which they said was more on the white album, but I really think you can start to hear where, John's songs were John's and Paul's songs were Paul's and George's songs were George. Yeah. Um, and all three were very themselves. Yes. Like they, you know, it was, you know, aside from like one or two, like a song, here, a John song here or there that still seemed to bleed into old school mm-hmm. Beatles-ness. Right, right. Um, or something like, um, I'm trying to think of the George song that's very like, not Dr. Roberts. There's a song in Rubber Soul that's I don't remember. It doesn't matter. But there's a couple of moments where they they kind of 
John and George seem to lean on yeah. old Beatles tropes, mm. like when they're kind of making a song. Well, where I think this is where kind of Paul's songs come to the fore a little bit. Yes. Maybe in George's songs too, because, you know, Taxman's a big deal. And But there's nothing on in the whole Beatles, um, like, canon that is Eleanor Rigby. There yeah. just isn't. Like, right. it's just, it's it's a singular, and again, I think... Maybe in the same way that yesterday at the time felt that mm -hmm. way. I think it got, you know, yeah. Blackbird and Mother Nature's Son and yeah. like, you know, some other stuff he did kind of glommed on to yesterday's field. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it was funny because I think George, you know, even made a point. Um, and I think it was in an interview mm -hmm. where, where they were all four there about doing solo albums. And George, you know, like, well, you know, Paul did Eleanor Rigby without any of us. Yeah, yeah, You know, which kind of coming on the heels of yesterday which you know we didn't hear any of them say that specifically that way mm -hmm. other than yeah you know you know i didn't see that i didn't think there was anything i could bring to it i didn't think there was anything i could bring to it so yeah um but yeah I, so i don't know um it would have been yeah I, I i wanted to see more of that um you know as much as anything and it seemed that they spent a lot more time just kind of you know this is really getting you know they're getting more complex in what they're writing um more complex in terms of what they're recording mm -hmm. um and trying to do it live was just not never going to be right and then that happen. live thing kind of took over where they were it seemed like in that part of the documentary they focused on grinding them down yeah like or the the ways in which they were being ground down by the yeah. the live performances yeah. and stuff you like have that. this really high level that they're mm -hmm. Um, executing in the studio and you go out on tour and you know the songs you know they don't fit they can't perform them as easily right and yeah well that's a good point because you i didn't even really think of that is that unless they were really going to commit to playing like taxman on stuff which we never heard a live taxman nope. we just heard the album taxman yep. unless they were going to they were going to commit to playing some of that stuff they were still playing like old beatles stuff it was <laughs> almost like when they played live during that time it stopped at help yeah. And then that was, you know, in nowhere, man. Nowhere like that man. was yeah. as far as it went. Um, but I think that's maybe, maybe it was done. Maybe we wish we, they had had done, spent more time in the studio with them doing that stuff. Right. But I think it, in, in terms of making a film, I thought it kind of segued really nicely into, well, I think it was supposed to segue really nicely. And then they researched what John and was, and George said, or what John said, and the George interviews about peppers, yeah. um, which was basically like, I don't know. <laughs> Paul came up with this thing and we just, you know, we did a bookend of it. And yeah, then we just, just did whatever yeah, we, we wanted. Yeah. And I, I love that when, you know, John talking, I love how they interspliced like the Mr. Kite stuff with snippets of John talking about how much he doesn't like peppers means very little you know it's just yeah. like any of those songs could be on any other record like right. they have nothing to do with anything right. and then capped off with george being like i didn't really like sergeant peppers <laughs> um but it does have the tremendous and this is where you want george this is where you want more george martin stuff with yeah. the day in the life stuff right i mean there's there's not a lot of musical footage i think that rivals george martin kind of tearing apart like a day in the life right and like, you know, taking all the faders out and like just leaving his voice and like you just get his expression mm. when he's watching it. And you can I think there was moments when you can see in all of their faces when they were talking about it, like where they just it the John stuff, except maybe for Paul, where the John stuff just kind of like hit him like John is dead. Yeah. And yeah. at that point, it was I suppose it was 15 years or maybe less than 15 years when they were making it. So it wasn't like 
as far removed from it mm. as it was now. So maybe it felt really, um, it felt really different. Maybe Paul was more sensitive to like what he said about John and didn't say because of, you know, Yoko was a, it was an yeah. executive producer on it. And he's, right. you know, him and Yoko don't have like a super tight relationship or whatever. Um, but I thought that was the pepper stuff was, was interesting. It was really long. Um, I thought it was weird that Neil Aspinall said him and Mal Evans went out to libraries to get prints. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what did you guys do? What was your job? What was your job? Was it just to do stuff? Yeah. Like I th- <laughs> kind of was. <laughs> and so after Neil, so let's talk about Neil Aspinall. So after Neil, after they stopped touring, cause he was their touring manager for a while. He started as kind right. of like a roadie yeah. guy. Yeah. It was, a, he was the driver. He was the driver. Yeah. And then he was the roadie. Yeah. Or, or not, he was a driver roadie and then he was a tour manager. Yeah. But then when they stopped touring, he was just kind of like a jack of all trades in the Beatles yeah. empire. Right. Yeah. Almost like a like a business manager without being a business manager. And I think that's where you kind of heard some of the, um, you know, uh, after Brian died and when they got into the whole Alan Klein, you know, Lee Eastman thing, you know, um, in between it was Neil. Yeah. Um, you know, without having, you know, any of the real, uh, knowledge or, you know, background to really do that, mm-hmm. um, which probably as much as anything led to some of the downfall, <laughs> you know, it, the Apple boutique and stuff yeah. like that. Um, well, and you get a really clear sense of that, I think. And I think this is moving us into the, do you have anything else from the middle? Like the, those kind of. No, I think, um, you know, and maybe just to the touring, you know, to actually hear George say how uncomfortable he was, you know, doing ticker tape parades. Oh, yeah. In the, you know, in the year after Kennedy was assassinated. Well, and just uh, to that point, I think that George is just kind of discomfort in doing everything when they brought, what is his name, Jimmy Nickel? Yeah. On tour with him. He's like, I don't know why we couldn't just say no. And he's like, but, you know, they just didn't let him say no. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other the other piece that um, you know I uh, you know uh, George George's comment um, I guess after they did Sergeant after they did um, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane mm-hmm. videos mm-hmm. <laughs> we invented MTV yeah. <laughs> which he said laughing yeah yeah um, but those I mean that's you know, that's again that's where the George Martin thing comes in because you want that gravity of what Penny what Strawberry Fields like meant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like coming out of all of the stuff, the first thing they did post quitting yeah. most of like what it meant to be a musician in yeah. 1966 was to make Strawberry and, Fields. And, you know, if you read anything about it and if you listen really closely, mm-hmm. John's voice doesn't sound like it's slowed down, any, I think, any it? other sound you've ever heard from John. No. Because, he, you know, George Martin put two pieces, two separate pieces together. Mm-hmm. And he had to adjust the speeds yeah. to get him to sync up. So yeah, John doesn't sound like John. No, he like sounds a little like Paul. A little, but bit, also yeah. like weird. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you would have you would have liked to have you know, you know. And there are some other stories about how he tried to you know how he tried to create the loops by running reels across the room and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, I remember reading that. Yeah. Well, and also the Keith Moon ending of strawberry fields yeah. stuff like the room they didn't do any of the so the, maybe you could talk a little bit about this a lot of the like beatles rumors and stuff didn't really get addressed no, right yeah yeah um so they're like they're all kind of still out there just kind of like 
yeah. you know, did Keith Moon actually play on like the end of Strawberry Fields or right. like, do, or did, you know, did Ringo play everything that they wanted to play? Cause I think there's like a case that could be made based on how they were talking that maybe Ringo didn't even play drums on some of the white album stuff when yeah. he quit. Right. That maybe Paul was just kind of like in the studio doing his own thing. And like, and that's why he quit. Not because he was feeling un, unloved, unloved. Yeah. But because he was just like, Paul's playing my stuff. I think that's, you know, and I, it's a good point because they, you know, they, they never talk about, you know, Paul being dead. Right. Yeah. They don't talk about any of that <laughs> and stuff. Any of that stuff. Um, you know, and you did see a lot of other people hanging around. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know if you, you might not have recognized them, but in the day in the life segment that they showed, Mike Nesmith from the Monkees yeah, yeah, shows I up did recognize in a couple them. of places. Um, you know, Keith Moon popped up in various places. Mick Jagger is everywhere. Jagger's everywhere. He's everywhere. Yeah. He's in all and their they, things. And they always acted as if the Stones and the Beatles were like at loggerheads and enemies and stuff like that. And they're and they're together like constantly. Well, that, I mean, I felt bad for Mick Jagger because they were talking about like when they went to um to Wales. Yeah. For the for the um Maharishi's like lecture thing yeah they're like showing all the beatles and then mick jagger's just kind of like yeah. like a happy little kid like tagging along yeah, there right? i was like he's just getting dumped on like well without mentioning mick jagger yeah. he's like always yeah. there like in the background yeah but they mentioned donovan they, they, they mentioned donovan a lot i think donovan was there i think donovan was the first guy to get busted yeah. uh yeah that's they're very funny uh, we got to boo donovan off the stage sort of they opened yeah. for yes he opened for Donovan. Donovan opened for Yes the first time I saw Yes at the Coliseum. <laughs> you know what's I like, ridiculous? I uh, was watching for something else, but also a little bit for this. I was watching the Scott Walker documentary, 30th Century Man. Have you seen that yet? No. It's on no. Prime. So Is it okay? So I'll look watch for it. it. Yeah. But there's a guy, mm-hmm. like Scott Walker's manager or whatever, during whatever, and they were like, um, you know, he was talking about how the music changed at one point, like at the end of when Scott Walker four came out mm-hmm. and he was like, Oh, you know, all these bands, like, you know, you had Genesis and uh, some other band and yes. And he goes, Aah! and sticks his finger down his throat for a really long time. And I was like, Oh man, that guy hates. Yes. Apparently. Um, but anyway, so this, I mean, I think that gets us to the kind of the end of the, the documentary, right. which is, which is, which is different, especially, I guess, in light of the fact that Peter Jackson is making this new... I suppose it's, it's... We're talking about it in light of this... Peter Jackson is making this new documentary using the footage, yeah. the Twickham footage, right. where it's not as bad as it seems like that in this documentary it was. Oh, yeah. And, but not even just like in the footage, all the Beatles, maybe except for Paul... Are, we're not a super fan of doing what they were doing. Right. So I'm curious. I'm, I'll be very curious to see what Peter Jackson has like uncovered yeah. that changes, you know, the, the mythology of what happened there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that last, that last, the last two discs are kind of a bummer. I yeah. mean, because nothing works, even when stuff works, it, they're really just pulling out like, you know, John saying, or maybe it was Paul. One of them said, "Like the the best thing about magical magical mystery tour is it's the only performance ever of I am the Walrus. I am the Walrus, but yeah. it's not even like a performance; it's just a music video. So yeah, it's just right. the album. Right. I mean, I am the Walrus is an awesome song, right. but still. Um, but they, they they kind of you you get you get a real clear sense of where the thread got lost. It was mm-hmm. when Brian Epstein died. 
And then Paul really kind of started asserting himself. Right. And, and like, even when John and Paul were talking about the Apple label, um, and like Badfinger seems like the only good band that they, that they, I mean, they showed the jet was Jackie Lomax, Alan yeah, Lomax, Jackie, Jackie Lomax, yeah. Jackie Lomax. And that other woman, Mary Hopkins, Mary Hopkins. And I was like, they thought these people were going to like, what do they think they were going to do? Yeah. And then when the Apple store got cleared out and then the Alan, like the Alan Klein stuff got just kind of really, really glossed over. And they yeah. seemed to make a bigger deal of the fact that Paul wanted his father-in-law to be mm. the manager. And that was where the real tension was. Right. Um, but I actually don't. I think there's more to the Alan Klein stuff than just, um, and it's not even. That's the thing. It's not even just Paul's fault. John was really like. E- it seems very easily led during yeah. that period, where yeah. anybody that said anything vaguely interesting, he was like, "Sure, we'll yeah, do that. Let's do that." Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't know if you've read um, Rob Sheffield's story in that in the last Rolling Stone. Um, no, not yet. But he actually does mention that you know. Part of the attraction John had for Alan Klein was that he was the Rolling Stones manager, mm-hmm. and the Rolling Stones hated him. <laughs> but they just they never said anything. Um, so I'm I'm with you. I've seen the Let It Be documentary, mm-hmm. um, and it is miserable. I mean, it literally is. You know, yeah, it's great when you see them, you know, actually perform some of the songs. It's great when you see them up on on the roof. Um, but yeah, it's just like, you know, if you didn't know, you know, when they actually recorded and, and, you know, um, filmed this documentary, mm-hmm. you would think that, no, there's no, no wonder they broke up after Let It Be. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't break up after Let It Be because yeah. they went and they did Abbey Road, which was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, probably because George Martin was there and just, okay, let's bring in your songs. Let's. You know, let's record them. Let's do the best performance. There's nobody else on there, but, you know, maybe there's some horn sweetening and mm. stuff in places. But it's just them. Yeah. Back in their wheelhouse doing what they do. And and that was and that was it. Well, and with all great songs, like George's, you know, um, contributions are all-time great songs. Yes. Ring, Octopus's Garden is arguably Ringo's best the best song ring i mean uh, a little help from my friends yeah but octopus's garden's got like this thing going on yeah. you know what i mean it's cool mm-hmm. it's different so it's arguably his number two yeah like you could do the yellow submarine thing if you want to you could be honey don't you could do you know act and naturally was, whatever right. you want yeah. to do yeah. octopus's garden i think is probably <laughs> the second best ringo song mm-hmm. right. um i hate come together that's i think that's an aesthetic thing for me i've just never liked it i yeah. don't know how you feel about come together it's not my favorite right um, it doesn't do any of the things that I want from a Beatles song. Yeah. I find the you know the 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 um, triptych thing that they did at the end mm-hmm. really obnoxious in in theory. Right, those are great songs. Mm-hmm. I mean, even the end is are <laughs> you know is awesome. Yeah. it rocks. Yeah. Um, you know the polythene the the golden slumbers polythene Pam like you know the end thing is weird mm-hmm. and it doesn't really work, but it's. It does work. It does simultaneously. work. Yeah. <laughs> it does work simultaneously. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, I think the, I think if the documentary has, you know, if I could just put one more flaw into it, there's no triumph at the end of it. Yeah. Cause they, they, they didn't end it with John's death. They didn't end it with like, 
you know, Michael Jackson scooping up all the royalty or the publishing for their thing. You know what I mean? They didn't end it with any of the things that they could have ended it with. Mm-hmm. You know, like we already said, they didn't end it with, they didn't include any mythology. So there's no, none of this like, you know, night, what is it? 75 or whatever, 76, where they think that John and Paul got together and like, you know, had this <laughs> Saturday night life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that thing. Um, they don't have any of that. It's, it's literally, we made Abbey road. That was the end. And Oh, and free as a bird. Yeah. <laughs> um which is just a George Harrison song with John Lennon singing on it. Right. Um it doesn't seem as tri- like it seems like they could have spent more time on that. Maybe so that's the thing. Maybe there was not there was no footage of making Abbey Road. Maybe on right. purpose. Yeah. There was no footage of making Abbey right. Road. There was yeah. no sound. Yeah. You know. Um but I I would have liked more of that because Abbey Road it doesn't feel like the thing that we all kind of think of it is as like the real end to the Beatles. I think it think in terms of how they what it would have taken for them to figure out how to sequence those songs on the second side. Right. In such a way that it would come together the way that it did. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. I mean you would have loved to have heard, you know, just you if George Martin could have left the tape running all that time and collected all that stuff and just, you know, heard playback of that stuff well there's would have been would have been very insightful and for their whole career there's always someone that seems to be filming or recording something like you know i i i think because is a great song mm-hmm. you know in john's contribution to abbey roads uh, are weird yeah. you know compared to like everything else that he was doing mm-hmm. but because it's still great mm-hmm. mean mr mustard is still a cool song right um I would have liked to see how do they do because what does that look like? Was mm. it just the three of them kind of were the three of them around a microphone? Cause right. it seems like they did a lot of that stuff. Yeah. Who played like the, the organy keyboard sound like stuff on that? Like mm. what did, did they have to, cause it has a weird sound too. Like what did they have to do something that would have been, that would have been good to know. And I think would have kind of bookended the beginning of the documentary nicely when we saw literally everything and heard uh, everything. Yeah. I mean, in that great, it's really long, but that great, like 10 minutes or whatever, of um meet uh um the the first record meet the beatles uh what's the first record please 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 me. please me um of all the takes yeah of all those songs you know what i mean yeah, like yeah. and they're cool it just seems so it's that to me is why you watch this documentary because you get that kind of you get that insight into the fact that like they didn't just they they you know he didn't, Paul just didn't sit down on his keyboard one day and was like golden slumbers, you know, <laughs> you know, whatever, just playing it. Yeah. You know, he developed it. He, you know, worked it out. But by the end of the documentary, that stuff was, gone. that stuff was gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was always kind of um, a bummer for me. And then yeah. you just have the really long, like, hello, goodbye stuff. And I was really surprised that they all seemed to like yellow submarine. And George had some really like pot because they really didn't seem to like anything that everybody else liked. But yeah. George was like, yeah, I liked it. You know, it's a it's like a kid's touchstone, which is true. Like, you know, you took our kids to see it. It's right. just a thing that if you're yeah. a kid, yeah. you at some point you see Yellow Submarine. Yeah. Well, and you and, you know, whether you see Yellow Submarine or not, you're singing it. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, somebody's teaching you Yellow Submarine at some point. You have heard Yellow Sub like the chorus to Yellow Submarine somewhere. Somewhere. From someone at, at some point in yeah. your life, you know, yeah. it drifted into your brain, yeah. and it will come, yeah, and it will recir- recirculate at various points. And I think maybe is that the '95. So, like, to go back to dreaming the Rob Sheffield's dreaming the Beatles, like, one of the things I think that's really interesting about that book is that he kind of explains for someone like me who didn't live through it, 
like the kind of ups and downs that Beatles fandom has kind of gone through. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there was the seventies where people were kind of like, or the, was it like the late seventies when that rock and roll compilation came out when it was just like their rock songs and yeah. that was like a big deal. And then yeah. they kind of went away for a little bit like, yeah. you know, and then, well, the, cause you had the two, you had the, the, you know, the, the blue and the white 62 to 66, yep. 67 to 70 people like, jumped on that and then yeah they started with the the rock and roll songs and the love songs and Mm -hmm. everything but in between they had live at the hollywood bowl Mm -hmm. um and stuff like that so yeah there was a little bit of that period where you know they were out there but like everybody was you know all the beatles individually were out and performing you know solo stuff Mm -hmm. to to varying degrees um so it kind of got lost and and for the longest time, Paul wouldn't. Paul would rarely perform Beatles songs, which is funny because now he toured. Now yeah. he said his half his, Beatles songs and whatever the new record right. is. Yeah. Um, so he did very few Beatles songs at the time, and if they were, they were you know like he, uh, Wings Over America. He did Blackbird and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, but it was more Wings mm-hmm. <laughs> and his you know whatever solo stuff he did. So yeah, I think it was probably during that. You know, seventy to eighty between the time they broke up to the time that George, uh, that John passed away, um, was murdered. Um, you know, was kind of this weird Beatle period where they were trying to, you know, Capitol Records was doing stuff to try to, you know, keep sales up mm-hmm. on the Beatles. Um, and then I think after John died, kind of turned. You know, things kind of changed mm. um, at that point. Um, and then, you know, kind of the celebration of, you know, all the things that he did with the Beatles, mm-hmm. much more so than his solo stuff, even though Yoko released, you know, additional solo stuff for a yeah, few years after that. Yeah, some of that stuff that. is good. Some of it is good and some of it is, yeah. Yeah. No biggie. Um, but yeah. So. Well, and then to the, I mean, and that takes, I uh, just, I remember I was working at the record store when one came out. Yeah. And that was just, we couldn't keep enough copies of Beatles one in our store. And it was just like, don't you have all these already? And then everyone was like, well, no, it's great because it's all their number one. It's like, it's like the best compilation ever. And that's yeah. true. Like from beginning to end, it's just like just one amazing song story. after the yeah, other. Yeah. Um, and it never flags. And even when you think like a song is, is weird, like the Ballad of John and Yoko is on there and you're just like, that went number one. Like how did that go? Number one in England. Right, there's like a loose, you know, yeah, yeah. vision of what number it meant to be number yes, one, yes. but um, and now it just and now we're kind of in oh, maybe we're on the other side of it because I mean I don't disagree. I actually, to, so we'll bring up the Rolling Stone 500 list. I actually think that objectively, what's going on? If I was to make a list myself, what's going on might be my number one mm-hmm. record, and it's got nothing to do with anything that's happening in the culture. I just think what's going on is amazing. Mm-hmm. There's it's one of those things that sounds like nothing else it's meaningful it's marvin fucking gay you yeah. know what i mean it's it's got a lot and, of and if if you've ever seen one of the there's a there's a couple of motown documentaries around and just if you watch how they pieced together the vocals mm-hmm. forget everything else just piece together the vocals there's three lead vocals on on that song oh, what's really? going on yeah um and you know just how he and he sang all of them yeah like you know so seeing how he envisioned how that song would come together. Mm-hmm. I'd probably give more credit, you know, to that song more so than the album, mm-hmm. but I can understand, yeah. you know, because the, there are several other really great songs on that album. 
But I think what where I'm going is that it's the Beatles are. I'm really big into the idea of derivativeness. And like, why listen to one band and you can just listen to the band that that band ripped right. off? <laughs> and I think in a lot of ways, I think the Beatles kind of if I think do the Beatles need to be at the top of everywhere? No. Do I think it's weird that Sgt. Pepper's is like now 24 on a list where like 10 years ago it was number one hmm. or 17 years whatever. was the last time yeah. whatever yeah. It was number one? I think it's weird because I think a lot of stuff starts with Sgt. Pepper's. Like, do you get, like, however you feel about Kendrick Lamar, I don't really think you can make to pimp a butterfly without Sgt. Pepper's. I mean, actually, I would, I may go home and, like, listen to both of those records back to back and write an essay <laughs> about, like, the fact that it's the theme, not the concept record, and not, like, a rock opera, hmm. but the idea that there's an overarching theme like a like in a beginning and an end it's a book ended that there's like this kind of idea really starts at sergeant peppers and at that's that's just where it begins like right. so so much of what we take for granted in music now really just starts with the beatles yeah um i don't know like can you have a nirvana record over almost like you know i i never mind's not even my favorite nirvana record so i'm probably not the best person to talk about this can you legitimately put nevermind over any beatles record would kurt cobain agree with that i 100 think he wouldn't you, you because were... without the beatles there is no nirvana yeah yeah no you're absolutely right and i think you know from from both elements of you know their influence musically and and the idea that an album is not two singles and you know eight or ten fillers depending yeah. upon but it's a it's you know a group of songs you know collected and presented as a whole mm -hmm. with the intent that you know from the first sound to the last sound that you know drones on forever on that album yeah that you know the idea there there's there's a uh, a an idea a concept and it's not it is not a conceptual song, you know, album, it's not a rock opera or anything like that. But there is, you know, it's presented as a whole. Well, and that's what they say on the thing. Like it works because we said it works. Yeah. That who I think John said that's right. uh, John yeah. said that. It works because we said it works. And that's that's true. When you listen to it, you're just like, I don't know. Like it, what does this what does it mean? Like yeah. how does this relate? And it doesn't relate, but you feel like yeah. it's just it's all of a it's all of a whole. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the, but I think for me as a musician to kind of go to what I was just saying, um, I think the Beatles anthology is a good illustration of, um, what it means to have permission as a musician to kind of like test the limits of what you want to do. Um, I actually think wish there was, you know, you wish there was more John in it mm -hmm. because, you know, you wish he was alive to kind of speak on it himself. Yeah. Although that table, that tea at that table would have been really weird if John Lennon was there. Um, especially I think when John, like it was, it was, it was never about the fame. It was about, while well, always being about the fame because the fame allowed him to do whatever he wanted mm -hmm. and not be maybe he wasn't a nice guy to his kid and maybe he wasn't a nice guy to his wife and maybe there's other stuff that we'll never know that he did but like i just think musically he could just at some point he was just like i could push this as i could push this as far as i want mm -hmm. i could do anything i want to do and 
I think the cool thing about like the John Lennon solo career is that he has still relied so heavily on all of his influences and his influences weren't weirdos. You know what I mean? Like his influences were just rock and roll guys. Like they talk about like the Roy Orbison thing, like, you know, with please, please me. He just, he wanted to make a Roy Orbison song. So his version of a Roy Orbison song was please, please me. Right. I kind of get it now that I, he said it and I, you know, I've heard it like a bunch of times. Sure. Why not? That's like a Roy Orbison Mm -hmm. song. Um, but as a musician, it was, it's, it's a a freedom that I, I don't think you, you have to, you have to learn it and you have to come to it. Um, but I, I think a lot of people don't ever get there. Like there's guys that I played with. I don't think Dane listens to this podcast. I think Dane has never kind of figured out how to take his influences and then make them his His own own. thing. Right. I think he's such a, he's so tied to his Beatles green day stuff. That he's just, all of his songs are just that. And I think one of the things that I've developed, and I think I, I definitely started, like, when I started playing music, I like, I had a specific set of people that I would go to and listen to stuff. And then even later, I was like, I, I want to make a song that sounds like this. I want to make a song that sounds like this. But now it's just, I'm, I know what my influences are. I know how they influence my process and what I'm going to do and, like, my chord structures and, like, how I set songs up. But I don't worry about, like, is it stealing? Because I know it's not stealing, which gives me the freedom to just kind of, like, suck stuff up and then just, like, spit out my yeah. own thing. Yeah. Well, and I think and, and music, by and large, is that's that's what it's meant to be. Um, there's, like, you know, you, nobody's going to go out and invent new chords every day. Yeah. Right. Even um, if you feel like you are inventing a new chord, yeah, which I've gone through j- myself. Chances are, probably not. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so everything is everything that you know people record is you know influenced by something else, and mm-hmm. it, it's right. I mean, it's there's a difference between mimicking it mm-hmm. over and over again, and you know identifying elements that you want to try to pull from various sources and and influences and putting it together through your voice mm-hmm. and i don't necessarily just mean vocals but you know through yeah, yeah. through what you write to um come up with something that you can say you know is yours mm-hmm. so and it, you know you see much it and i think that was really one of the elements especially in the early part of the of of the anthology where you saw how they did that right and and how you know, those pieces kind of came together and you can kind of hear and see how, well, how they accomplished that. Because every moment it was something new. Yeah. It, every moment was something that they never did before. So, you know, what, later in the documentary, it was all stuff that they've kind of done before. So like when it wasn't, when it was new, they, they did break that stuff out. Mm-hmm. So the day in the life, yeah. you know, the breakdown and all this other stuff. Yep. Um, but even then like freaking Paul, who's just like, <laughs> you know, he can't just like, you know, I had this one thing and Paul had this other, th- or John had this other thing. And we just said, well, yeah, obviously that's how it went. But like, are you saying that your thing is as good as John's thing? Because John's thing is like sublime. Yeah. And your thing is fine. Yeah. Like, it's cool. It's a good bridge, it's but a, it's not the, it's not the I other, it's not John's thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think in different places, and this is where, you know, to your point, and, and it's really spot on, you know, that Paul, um, I, I mean, Paul is is a an unbelievably unique talent. Oh, he's fantastic! Um, and um, but you know, not everything he did obviously was you know 
so phenomenal. And and this was an instance where you can you can read any number of of you know um, stories on it. You know, John said, "I don't have a bridge." Yeah, and Paul said, "Well, I got this." <laughs> right, and then they just and then and the, and George Martin said, "Okay, yeah, this could." You know, we could piece these together and then, you know, well, we wanted to like really build up to the bridge and then we wanted to come out of the bridge and into the, you know, and and George figuring out how to, George Martin figuring out how to make that work. Yeah. Well, and I love, and it's one of the the things that I love to do when I listen to Sergeant Peppers is turn up, I turn it up all the way when they hit that thing because yeah. I want to hear the counting. Yeah. I love hearing the counting, <laughs> but I only knew that the counting was there because of this. Right. And I, I just, lo- I just love it. Yeah. I just think it's great. I think actually it's one of the things. So there's a record called um, by this band, Neutral Milk Hotel. Um, and there's like this eight minute song that the the lead singer did. He recorded like his guitar track and the vocals in one take, and he just did it in eight minutes. And it's like whatever. And at the end of the thing, um, I read in a book about it that you can hear the guy that played. Like he was like the multi, he was either the drummer or like the multi instrumentalist who played like the saw mm-hmm. and like other stuff on it on their in their band it was just like holy shit at the end of it and I had never heard it before <laughs> and then after I read it I went and like turned it up and you can hear it and it's just like the best thing you know because it feels so real it yeah, makes it feel yeah. so real like right. you can actually hear it happening on what what is being taped is like it's like an expression of 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 reality almost i mean it was like in that yeah. moment it was an expression of the moment it's like never gonna happen again it was yeah. just like that one time maybe mal evans counted off to 24 like a hundred thousand times i have no idea but it makes it feel like he did it once yeah yeah um but i think that's the great thing about the documentary is that it makes you know that they didn't do it once they're not like jesus yeah you know <laughs> You know, regardless of what John might say, they're not Jesus. They were just if and if Jesus could play the guitar and was like an amazing songwriter, um, they're just guys who just worked really freaking hard at like playing music. Yeah, and that was, I guess we can close on this. One of the great things that you know to to Paul uh, saying something nice about Paul is that. I love the long and winding road performance, mm-hmm. not just because John is sitting on the floor for the whole thing with Yoko next to him, um, but because you never saw Paul play piano for like the whole thing. And he also never mentioned that he learned how to play piano as a kid. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden he's a guy who can play the long and winding road without ever looking at his keyboard. Right. And I suppose that's another flaw in the documentary. They don't ever talk about like handing over, let it be to Phil Spector <laughs> and ruining it. Yeah. Um, but like there's this I suppose the thing that I'm gonna keep coming back to and I, I borrow this from you like every year and a half or so. Like <laughs> right. it'll just disappear and yeah. and I'll take it and I'll watch it and Nicole and I was I asked Nicolette if like you know, she was looking at her phone, she was looking at you know, politics stuff. And by politics stuff, you know what I'm I do you know what I'm yeah. talking yeah. about. Um and I was just like, Oh, why don't you just watch it? She's like, I've seen this so many times. It's like, oh, she has probably seen this way more times than she wants to. But like once it's on, I can't turn it off because you just watch it. For me as a musician, you're just watching these musicians turn from yeah. one thing into like another thing. Right. And I suppose maybe to like end on like a super sappy note, I just like always hope that I will at some point like find my long and winding road moment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Where I can just kind of, you know, I'm just really good at this. I can long that that performance seems really like you know casual Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like ringo's kind of just like 
Yeah. George literally doesn't ever stop fiddling with his volume knob, even when he's supposed to be playing. And you know he's playing, like it's you know it's, yeah, it's it sounds totally live, live, yeah. But he's just you know, he keeps doing his thing. It's like, yeah. oh, but that's so great. They're not even trying, yeah. and they're just like murdering this like amazing it's song. Amazing. Yeah, and, and it does explain you know, and it's probably not a surprise why you know Paul loves that version far more than what oh, ended yeah. up on the Let It Be. I do too. Um, and, but you. It, you have to see it to appreciate it, it yep. in that in that through that lens yep because when you hear it on on the alternate version of the let it be record mm-hmm. it sounds like a demo on the on the cd that's true yeah but if you see it it's like it's real yeah they're really doing they yeah. say sat down to do it. they right. literally sat down to, yeah. to do it they're all sitting yeah yeah um but yeah, all right. Well, that, I think I think we did it. You got cool. it. anything else? I got nothing else. All right, I'm good. I don't I don't know how we're gonna end this. Maybe so. I'll we'll just say, uh, good. <laughs> I don't know. This is really weird because I'm gonna have to Wait, insert let, this let me let me see if there let me see if there was something that um, George mentioned uh, that was kind of funny. Oh yeah, um, I it, it was in it was in disc three when George um, referred. <laughs> referred to the Beatles as some other entity and said, the Beatles are funny. <laughs> and I had to make a point of writing that down because like, yeah, okay. Yeah, the Beatles are funny. The Beatles are funny. All right. Very good. All right, All right. thanks, Dad. Thank you. We can do it at Film Pivotal. <laughs> or you can go to Pivotal Film, or you can write us at PivotalFilmPodcast at gmail.com. Tom, calm down. Bert. Sorry, I'm sorry. Sorry, I'm pumped up about the Beatles. Our our blue on our recording thing is just like... Oh, oh sorry, let me, let me re-say this. If you want to tweet us, you can tweet us at Invisible. Or you can send us a message at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, motherfuckers! <laughs> or you can go to pivotalfilmpodcast.com and see a list of the, the movies on our top 100 list or the beers that we drank and We're enjoy. We're close to the end. But also so not close good. to the end. Because as we've kind of, you know, so we've divided this episode into two different episodes. You know what I mean? And I I think it's going to happen a lot. Because even, we planned this, but as we talk, I can envision, like, our number, like, nine. Us just sitting here for four hours being like, you know. You know what? Has has the world delays its releases, we'll delay our digital film. Yeah, fuck you, world. Take that. Eat it, world. Um, but yeah, until then, uh, until all the new movies come out, <laughs> folks. 2025. Until we put out episode 14, which may come next week, which may come 10 weeks from now. Who knows what's going to happen? Uh, See a movie? Drink a beer? We'll talk, talk to, to you next week. No, oh, we're saying together. We've never said uh, anything together. We'll talk, talk to you next week. week.